Welcome to the Quarter 3 Games Podcast. My name is Bruce Garrick, and my game of the week is not Ridiculous Fishing. My name is Tom Chick, and my game of the week is not Sid Meier's Gettysburg. Oh! How could it not be? I know. Well, yeah. for once, just for this week. It just is every week. other week, of course. Right. But just this 50, week. 51 way, weeks a year, yeah. Exactly right. It, it deserves a break every now and then. Sure. Do you have to look up... How to spell Gettysburg. Like, do you have to look up, Bruce, when you write it, whether or not it's U-R-G or E-R-G? And I'm going to guess no for a couple No, I do, I do not. You don't. No. You don't. All right. Is no. it because you visited the, the actual uh, place where the battle was fought? That wouldn't be the reason that I don't have to look it up, but I did, in fact, visit the place, yes. Is it because it's E-R-G, right? Because Berg is town and Berg, B-U-R-G, is mountain. Is that correct? That's the opposite, actually, but yes. Oh, my God, you're kidding. No. It's Gettysburg, U-R-G. U-R-G is town? U-R-G is town. E-R-G is burg, like a burgmeister is a mountain. No, that's the, that's the mayor of a town. No, sir. Burg, <laughs> burg, B-E-R-G. So, Bruce, like many things, it's something that I know something about, but I know the wrong things about it. That's interesting. Huh. <laughs> kind of like the Civil War? Uh, I know enough things. You could quiz me on the Civil War, okay. and I would probably get at least a C. I All think. right. Without studying. If I studied, I could get maybe a B minus. Okay. Who's buried in Grant's tomb? Buried in Grant's tomb is the unknown soldier. <laughs> they stuck him in there because yeah. they felt bad that they didn't know who he was. So let's yeah. give this guy a prestigious position. And yeah. then they buried Grant in... Uh, is that a real question, by the way? What's the deal with that being a question? I don't. I never understood that. I, I People used to ask me that like when I was in grade school. It was like a, some kind of like secret like rhetorical question or something. Right. I never really understood the answer. I always thought it was a sort of a thing like a... You know, does a bear s in the woods? I don't want to say that. Mm, mm-hmm. I thought it was that like that kind of thing. You're right about like yeah. the rhetorical question, but like right. a, a duh kind of deal. Right. I don't, I don't know. Um, mm. well, maybe why, we just didn't understand it. Maybe so. Maybe it was one of the many references that went over our heads because we were yeah. busy uh, reading books instead of watching whatever was on television. Right. Or yeah. Uh, why are we talking about the Civil War? What's up with that? That's a good question. Uh, so my answer is that um, I played. A great game uh, called In Magnificent Style, and you played it. What you assert is a great game mm-hmm. called Dawn of the Zeds. They seem like they have nothing to do with each other. In Magnificent yeah. Style sounds like it's about sailing ships mm-hmm. in yeah. the 16th century right. with the French naval officers right. d- declaring to their men, "You should raise the sails in magnificent style." Right. That yes. <laughs> Except they'd have more of a Frenchy accent. <laughs> Uh, what a terrible name for a game. It doesn't hmm. tell me anything about what it's about. So you're going to... Whereas Dawn of the Zeds, duh, everybody knows. I mean, that's like a who's buried in Grant's tomb, if I've ever heard yeah. one. Uh, so what is In Magnificent Style? So In Magnificent Style is a solitaire game about Pickett's Charge, uh, which is something that I kind of got interested in after uh, going to Gettysburg a couple mm-hmm. years ago and going to visit the uh, place where uh, General Robert E. Lee stood when the failed Pickett's Charge uh, returned to the Confederate lines. And I was amazed uh, that a game, there was a game about it. 
um, and I thought it was I thought it was really brilliant, and um, I was interested in stuff that this guy had done, and then you you introduced me to, to some kind of a zombie thing that uh, Herman had done. This is Herman Luckman is the designer. I'm sorry, I should, probably should mention his name. But, and now, uh, why would you be amazed that there's a game about Pickett's Charge? Because, well, of course, it was a it was a, an important point of the Battle of Gettysburg, mm-hmm, right. certainly a, a famous one. Why would you be surprised there's a game about this? And what what surprises you about In Magnificent Charge uh, In Magnificent well, Style? Well, I think that sort of if anybody sort of internalizes anything about Pickett's Charge, it's the idea that it kind of had no chance of success. Mm-hmm. So, in that way, it would be sort of like you know. Um, a game about the charge of the light brigade. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you don't really want to have a game in which one side can't win. And if you're going to make a game about Pickett's Charge and actually give it a chance of success or winning the Battle of Gettysburg, um, it would seem kind of weird. So I was shocked that there would be a game about it. And in this new burgeoning um, genre of solitaire games that exist, I think it's actually a perfect way to represent Pickett's Charge. Um, but then, as typically happens, uh, I kind of went overboard and read a whole bunch of books about Pickett's Charge and yada, yada, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but then I realized that Herman Lutman, who designed it, was also designing other games about the Civil War. And I had been doing, previously I had done several podcasts, including one with you, with Volker Runke, about Vietnam games. And so I thought, well, let's do a podcast about Civil War games. I wonder what's what's interesting to Herman about the Civil War, since he's done uh, a miniatures rule set about the Civil War, which is kind of offbeat and out there. And then he did the Solitaire game, and now he's got a couple other games that are in um, in production. Uh, assuming that enough copies get ordered, they'll make them. So I just kind of wanted to figure out what uh, what was going on with this. And you had reviewed. Um, Dawn of the Zeds, which frankly sounds like some sort of Canadian breakfast game, um, but uh, I I was I was surprised that someone who seemed to be so hardcore in his interest in the uh, Civil War that he would write a miniatures. I mean, that's really. I mean, you got to admit, writing a, a set of miniatures rules is about as hardcore dorky as it gets. Right, and not the zombie-style dorky, like hardcore historical Right, dorky. historical. Like it's, it's a super subcategory of dorkiness. Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, so I thought, huh, this is very interesting. You've got someone who's writing miniatures rules, and then this really well-designed, uh, I think it's almost a genius um, combination of theme and mechanics uh, and a solitaire game, and then a game about zombies. So I was fascinated. So uh, we contacted Herman, and he very graciously agreed to join us. So um, that, I thought that's kind of where this whole thing came from. Well, let's go find out what the deal is. Uh, stick around if you're listening. Uh, Bruce and I are going to hang out and chat afterwards. Uh, and, and let's go talk to Herman and, and figure out what's going on with this fellow. How many Civil War games uh, have you designed? Uh, I have... Two out now, and a third one just coming out. Your timing is perfect. And I just had one go out on P500, on uh, GMT's P500. Is that the third one that's on the way, or that's the fourth one? That'll be the fourth one. And tell us what the two are. Okay, so we have uh, uh, Stonewall Sword coming out for White Dog Games. That's on the Battle of Cedar Mountain. Mm -hmm. 
that's a regimental scale Civil War game, and that's actually the parent game to the system that I'm using for the GMT game. Uh, okay. It features this this system called we call it the Blind Swords uh, Chip Pull System, which actually started in a game called Duel of Eagles that I did on the Battle of Mars Latour. And we kind of expanded upon that. That went into the Cedar Mountain game. And now I have another game coming out called Hammer and Sickles about uh, Longstreet's attack at Gettysburg. Wait a minute. Dan Sickles. Yeah, that's not Civil War. That's communism. Hammer and... (laughs) (laughs) That was a a joke title that that Roger Taylor posted on Consum World a couple of years ago when I first brought up the idea of the game. And everybody liked it so much we decided to keep it. And I just assumed that GMT was going to drop it. Kind of like it. it's stuck, and they loved it. They said, "No, we're going to keep it. It's going to be hammer and sickle." So, That's so those catchy. are the two on the way. What are the two that you've already released that folks might know you from? Well, my very first game I designed was Gettysburg the Wheatfield, which was a uh, miniatures board game that I did for Victory Point Games. Uh, that that's a no hexes, no hex map war game. That's technically it's a, it's a miniatures game presented as a board game. Uh, and that evolved from a set of actual miniature rules called Tattered Flags that I designed back in the 90s as an in-house, in-house set of rules, which all miniatures gamers do. They all design their own in-house rules. Mm-hmm. And the second one was uh, In Magnificent Style, which is about Pickett's Charge. That's a solid that's, that's the game that uh, really kind of turned my head when I, uh, when I got it. Uh, it's, it's fascinating. You, you, you've designed... A set of miniatures rules, which is probably one of the most sort of uh, technically um, sort of demanding types of gaming you can do, because you have to measure a lot of things, and there's a lot of you know things left to. Um, well, there's very little left to the imagination, and then you have this game called In Magnificent Style, which is in fact a solitaire game, and it's very um, sort of stylized. But mm-hmm. it's fascinating. Um, you you talk a little bit about how I think you said it was your grandmother in the designer's notes who had taught you a German sort of uh, dice game. Yeah, when I was a kid, uh, uh, my grandmother would come over and uh, we played this dice game called Schwein, which means pig in German, and it was very mm-hmm. simple. Adding the dice together, tallying your score, kind of game. But if you roll, you roll two dice at a time, and then one if one of the two dice was a one. You'd lose all your points up to that point, that you know, in that in that set of rolls, and you'd have to pass the dice on. If you rolled snake eyes, you'd lose all your points that accumulated in, during mm-hmm. the entire session. So, I mean, it helped us learn math very quickly, and thus <laughs> I'm an accountant today. I guess I can accredit that to uh, this dice game. But um, you know, one of the things I try to do when I design games, and I think of accomplish that is I try to think out of the box I try to do designs that nobody else wants to do or that people think are too tough to do mm-hmm. so I, I really like World War One, and I said well, why aren't there any World War I trench games I mean there's got to be a way to game trench warfare it's not as boring as people think it is mm-hmm. so somehow I don't know one day I came up with this idea well what if you did is a push your luck you know you're trying to get your, you know what's the concept you're trying to get these guys across no man's land you know, where's the game? And the game was pushing your luck. You know, how far can you push them before they become too exposed? And where do you pick your points where you're going to stop and and let them rally or, you know, jump in a trench or whatever and, and, you know, gain that amount of room? 
Mm-hmm. So using the the idea of the dice mechanic where I'm rolling and I'm rolling, I make sure I don't want to roll a one, and I definitely don't want to roll two ones. Yep. You know, that's where the tension gets built gets built in. So originally the game was designed as a World War One trench game, and then hmm. when I presented the idea to Alan Emmerich, we were like, well, World War One trench games aren't really going to be, you know, <laughs> marketable. Right. So let's think. Of, let's think of another situation. So then that kind of evolved into well, I'll have to pick something in history that nobody's ever game before because it's too ludicrous. The game, it's too mm-hmm. one sided. Mm-hmm. And you know, from reading about the wheat field when I was researching that, you know, you of course read about the whole battle and you get into Pickett's Charge and you go, oh my God, well it's Pickett's Charge. I mean, what else? So you know, and that's a great subject. It's Gettysburg. Gettysburg settles. There's no question about it. Yeah. And, and that's that's how that evolved into in magnificent style. And you're right, it is a totally different game than Gettysburg the Wheatfield. You know, uh, one of the big problems with the Wheatfield with the miniatures games is that uh, traditional hex encounter guys have a really hard time playing without the hexes. Yep. You know, I just here's a map of terrain. You you're allowed to move your units like this, very free flowing, and they're actually. They're actually afraid to move their pieces, like they're going to float away into space or something. Yeah, it's funny. It is funny. Really? I mean, there's, it, it's yeah. funny how the hobby has these all these weird sort of hang-ups, and people have different. You, you were just uh, sort of in the in the pre-show little chat. We were talking about how you have you know friends who are you know into euros or not into euros, and right. there are war gamers who you know won't play games that have area movement. Um, you know, right. area movement used to be this big, dirty word, you know, a, a number of years ago because it was felt that it wasn't realistic, right? Oh, you can just just have an area. You have to have, you know, there should be a hex around the building, right? You have to be in the building or not in the building. How can you have an area? And, um, you know, miniatures are the same kind of thing. People are like, oh, you know, is that guy, you know, the corner of my unit is in, is in the building. Does that mean he's in the building? Well, if he's not in the building, then how come the corner's in there? So, you know, you should have a hex around it. You should either be in or out. So it just, it, it's, it's funny, um, well, yeah, it's okay. funny because Andy Lewis over at GMT Games, I was talking to him uh, huh. years ago about Gettysburg the Wheatfield, and he says, oh, I don't like miniatures rules. They're too loosey-goosey. Mm. <laughs> I mean, I know what he meant. You know, it, it, right. a lot of it's a judgment type of thing, yeah. and you have to play with the right kind of guys, and all many guys know that. You know, if right. you're not playing with the right group of people, then, you you know, you got to find a different group of people to play minis yeah. with. Yeah. That that is funny to hear, Herman, because I I'm I'm a serious hardcore board gamer, but I definitely think I've never played a miniatures game, and every time I've been somewhere where there are people playing miniatures games, I've kind of considered them this weird subclass of <laughs> of board gamers who aren't really doing anything. Like, like it's definitely below actual board gamers, or even below like CCG players, collectible card game players. Uh, I have no idea what to make of those guys. And if someone right. were to invite me to play miniatures games, it would be like me inviting someone who's never played a board game or who just knows board games as monopoly to mm-hmm. to come join us. I think of that as this weird subclass that is beyond my ken. Well, it's interesting because when we were designing, uh, uh, I, I hate to get off on a tangent here, but you know, the no, game we uh Alan and I were talking about, well, how do we present the markers? Now, me coming from a miniatures background, the whole idea of a miniatures game is to make it look good, right? Mm-hmm, so you mm-hmm. want the units to look like real men. You don't want the markers or anything interfering with the look. So I was telling them, well, if you have a disordered marker, it's got to have a green background. It's got to be, you know, 
very subdued, and he's yelling, "No, no, no! The disorder <laughs> markers have to be orange and yellow, and they have to." And I said, "No, it's not going to look right if you do it that way." <laughs> and so we had this constant struggle, and I said, "No, you got to get into the miniature's mind. Is they, it's supposed to look like a battlefield. It's not supposed to look like a game with markers piled all over." Right. Right. So, well, there's yeah. to go off on an even further tangent. I don't know if you've <laughs> played the. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if you've played the. Um, uh, Napoleon at Marengo uh, and um, uh, Napoleon's Triumph, the Australis games that yeah, Simmons uh, games, the the ones where they have the little blocks. Yeah, the Guns of Gettysburg too. Uh, I I don't know that one. I don't know in particular, but I, uh, I, I think we yeah, oh, is it, did did they make another one? Gosh, I haven't even seen that. Uh, Especially how far behind I am, but it, you know, they're all—all all these games are striving to 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 capture this aesthetic, right? And it's an aesthetic that a certain portion of the market wants. And 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 I always think about it. It's so funny because you know you've got this this market that's not really that big in the first place, and now you're like, okay, those twelve guys <laughs> yeah. over there, those guys really want the little blocks, and you know, yeah, the, and the fifteen guys on the other, yeah, it's just it's just yeah. it's just it's crazy. But I know. Uh, so, you know, yeah, we, you're right. We have such a small hobby, and yet we see the hack away at each other, don't we? Yes. Yeah. yeah, it's kind of silly, but uh, but I really, I, I want to get back to your game because I, I uh, this is the so so for the uh, listeners who probably haven't played in magnificent style, but as soon as you finish listening to the podcast, you should buy it. Uh, that's a firm recommendation uh, from me. Um, well, it's you. it's a uh, it, I, I love it. Uh, it's um and and it's also well produced. Um, this is a this is a great uh, I think fit for. The Victory Point Games um, production model. It's it doesn't it doesn't have to be super fancy, but it looks it looks really nice. The counters work really well. Um, there's, yeah, there's, there's the map on that one too. The, the maps oh the maps really nice. There's actually a deluxe map which um, is is a is it like a puzzle map. I actually frankly prefer the the one piece map uh, that comes in the folio. Uh, I have both. I bought the folio and then I just bought the extra map. And I just, why, I why do you like the one piece map, Bruce? Because I feel the same way about some of the Victory Point games. What, what's the deal with the one piece map? Um, I just I feel like the the um, the the puzzle uh, sort of contours are obtrusive. Uh, mm-hmm. Sometimes they come undone. Um, you know, if you, somebody bumps the map, they can pop out. Um, but I just don't see any real benefit to um, to the to the puzzle map, uh, other than it's a little sturdier. But I tend to play uh, these games with a piece of like most obsessive war gamers with a piece of plexi over it. And if you just take the right. uh, the, the single map and put a piece of plexiglass, a uh, small piece of plexiglass over it, it looks beautiful. Uh, and I, I agree that I think the, the map part is is great. For, for um, me, it's those yeah, it's those puzzle uh, joints. When you're scooting a yeah. chit, they will yeah. catch on the joint of the chit. For instance, right. I play a lot of a game called Ottoman Sunset that Victory Point publishes. And any time mm-hmm. the east front is advancing uh, to, I think it's called Erzurum, which is a place in Turkey, yes. uh, mm-hmm. the chit will stick on Erzurum. <laughs> the, the Russians always <laughs> will get stuck on the way because of that little joint on the, the puzzle. Yeah. They're entrenched, of course. Very good. Um, yes. yes. <laughs> Um, I agree with you. I like the paper map myself because I like to put it in a poster frame, which mm-hmm. is the same as the plexiglass, but it has the, the you know the framing, uh, right. the edge you close. And so I actually prefer it that way myself. Yeah. So and, and it's I've I've also stopped buying uh, whenever possible boxed games because uh, I just don't have room for them uh, anymore. It's just it's just gotten out of control. So anytime I can get a folio game, I, I love to just grab that and I can have a nice little box mm-hmm. of like thirty games and it takes up you know. Right. 
one one fiftieth the size that um, space otherwise would take up. But um, the game itself is. I, I, I want to talk about some of the systems. First of all, your game got me to read two complete books about biggest charge. Um, well, that's, well, that's terrific because in the designer's notes, I said, you know, I, I, I say that this is an abstract model of Pickett's mm-hmm. charge, and the real goal was to get people to research the real Pickett's charge to find mm-hmm. out what really happened here. Because mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, the game is a you know a simulation, but it's it, it's designed to um, you know g- give the player the emotional feel of trying to get these men across. This seemingly impossible battlefield to achieve mm-hmm. their goals, and you know, mm-hmm. if you're feeling that while you're playing the game, imagine what it was like in real life trying to cross this, right. this open mile of field. Yeah, and and it's it's interesting that you have the. Um, I mean, I was reading one of the, one of the books is is interesting as a historian that I think was once at the uh, Gettysburg uh, National uh, Battlefield, um, and she wrote a book called Pickett's Charge in History and Memory. Um, which uh, sort of gets into the whole idea that, uh, you know, the Virginians um, sort of usurped the uh, usurped the glory for that whole charge when, uh, you know, there were uh, troops from several other states, including North Carolina, um, mm-hmm. that participated uh, just as, they, for some reason, it became, it became Pickett's charge when... Um, you know, Longstreet was actually the overall commander, and 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 there were multiple. Um, Pettigrew was involved. And there were just there were different. There were different uh, different commanders. So so just the idea. I mean, the, the the battle. You can you can read so much about the battle, not just about the battle itself, but then sort of the post battle, um, sort of a historical infighting that happened among Civil War veterans, and how uh, even at the time when sort of the Union. Uh, triumphalism or, or the, 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 the post-victory glory that accumulated to the, to the, um, to the Union Army, there was always this sort of special place for this thing that had happened because it was seen as the, the victory of the Union, uh, the, the point where the Union victory sort of became assured in retrospect turned mm-hmm. into the, was Pickett's charge and so therefore in defeat, it became almost more important than anything else the Union Army had done, and these people started really resenting that. It's a fascinating history that that goes with the the charge that has nothing to do with actually what happened in the in the battle. But so uh, I, I can th- better see. <laughs> yeah, I can, I can thank you for um, for getting me for, for informing informing me in that way because I would never have read anything uh, if I hadn't played the game. Well, thank you, I appreciate that, I'm, I'm, and I'm glad that it had that effect on you. Yeah, so that so so let's talk about how the game works. Um, the game uh, you were describing, um, your grandmother uh, had um, uh, taught you a German game, uh, a push your luck game, and you decided that you were going to put it uh, into uh, into into play um, in this way, and then all of a sudden, but you have all these other things that are so much more than just that that German push your luck game, and you have you have the chits. Um, that you pull. Tell me about every time you move. So you you get to move your units. You have um, you have nine lanes, uh, which will be familiar to um, League of Legends players. Um, and you have these lanes, and uh, you can move your units forward. And then you roll dice to see whether you're you can move or are stuck, or whether you break and move backwards. Um, and then tell me about you have to pick a sort of an event every time. 
Um, so that obviously that's not part of the of the base game that you learned. How did well, how did you right. come up with that? Well, you, you couldn't just do the game. So the the idea was okay. So I have this push your luck idea where I'm gonna you know how much do you want to exert these men? So that's the basic matrix that you're talking about with the dice. So you have you get the two dice, uh, the black and the white die, and you cross reference them. So after you get past, well, ones are bad, and all right, ones are bad. Well. Mm-hmm. You, Sixes be good then, you know. So there has to be an upside to the downside, right? Uh, so then you you know you cross reference that. So if you roll snake eyes, obviously your your route. If you roll uh, uh, box cars, you're you're onto Washington, and things really go well for you. Everything in between, there's different variations then of well, how bad or is bad, and how good is good, and the the idea of the chits came in. We had to you know inject something else going on in the game, so. I had used events in Gettysburg that we filled, so I said, "All right, well, let's let's get some events going here." And um, they give opportunities to the player to use, you know, different qualities to help their men along. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in retrospect, if, if you roll poorly and you get the blue chits, the blue chits are going to activate the artificial intelligence, the union player, and bad things can happen to you. Mm-hmm. So it, it just added more dimension. There was more narrative there more of the histories in, in the chits. That's So, I mean, the, the, the basic mechanic of moving is in the dice, but the chits add all the flavor and the character to it. Mm-hmm. Was and this then, always, Herman, a solitaire design? Did you ever toy with the idea of having a confederate and a union player, or did you always think of it yeah. as just one guy against the dice? Right. It was it, Well, we ended up calling this the death or glory system, and, and the idea is that it's going to be a solitaire, and it's going to be I'm going to take the hopeless position in all these in these battles and see what I can do against the AI, which is going to just come at me, which I guess is a theme of a lot of games, because you use that in Dawn of the Zeds, too, <laughs> the zombies come at you. Already. But, uh, yeah, it was always a solitaire game. Now, aside from uh, the, the, the theming, and whether or not people like zombies or Civil War or whatnot, uh, how would you describe the state of solitaire board gaming these days? Because it's kind of new to me, this whole idea of, you know, I'm going to play something at the table, and I don't need to press my friends into service because the game is designed just for, for me alone. For me, that feels like something that's only come up in the last, like, three or so years. Uh, t- tell me a bit about, yeah, what, what's going on that there are people making solitaire board games? Well, there's very few. I mean, uh, really, in the old days, what was it? Butterfield's uh, RAF and uh, D- D- was a D Day at Omaha Beach and a couple mm-hmm. of others. B seventeen, uh, uh, Queen of the Skies, Ambush. Uh, there were a couple out there, but you're right. I mean, they weren't they weren't in the mainstream. I don't think. And I think probably as our hobby ages, I guess you know the war gamers are basically older guys and. You know, we retire, we move, uh, our friends move. You know, you need more, you, you have more opportunities to play solitaire. You know, you know I, I don't know about you guys, but I mean, I have a club that I get together with once a week. Mm-hmm. There are about a dozen guys or so, I'm, so I'm pretty lucky. But there's a lot of guys around the country who don't have that. And the solitaire designs that are specifically designed to be played solitaire. I'm an, I'm an awful solitaire player playing a two-player game. I've tried it. You know, in other words, you take out a regular game and you set it up and you play right. each side against yourself. Well, that makes that. no sense. Why would you do that? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I personally, I get bored of it after about the third turn. I'm like, because yeah. you know, to me, the reason I like gaming so much to me it's the uh, it's the adventure, it's the narrative, it's the 
you know, the opponent, the, the, the storytelling, the escapism, whatever you want. And you don't get that if you're just playing, you know, a two-player game by yourself. I, I like to be surprised by the game. And I don't know about you, but I can't surprise myself when I'm playing the two sides. So, you know, solitaire-specific games have really come out, you know, well, you're right, about three or four years. I mean, VPG was in the forefront of doing that. They came out with a lot of stuff like that. And and they're tough games to design well. They really are. It, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tough thing to make that, that opponent... Uh, credible and to give you a real challenge and there's different mechanics to do it in in I'm sorry in magnificent style you know we use the chits and the and the dice rolls to do that other games use cards and um, but it, it's definitely come to the forefront uh, and are, are solitaire games doing well like there's a, a viable market for this is there any uh is in magnificent style doing well. well for instance. Uh, the States of Siege system is their best-selling line of games, and uh, and those are all solitaire specific. And, and so I would say yes. But the funny, you know, you talk about subcultures of gamers. There's there's gamers out there, and I read them all the time in console world who will not touch a solitaire design game. Will not for what reason? They, yeah, yeah. What's their deal? What's the problem I, with those guys? I don't know. I don't think that they think they're worthy of. They cannot possibly be good games, well-designed games, if if there's not two players in it. They don't believe that any designer, I don't think, is good enough to design, a, you know, a satisfactory AI. Well, that's I mean that's the thing about the about solitaire games, though, right? Because the there there's a whole idea of what really constitutes an AI. Because an AI can be this, you know, can be, uh, you know, I think I've heard it described as like a, a robot that just makes moves based on some algorithm and yeah i mean that that's pretty terrible i mean that's but if you design a system where you simply tune the system to the point where you know first of all you ha- the, the system hopefully is playing by different rules than you are which is why asymmetric games work so well um you know as solitaire games because if you have if you if both both sides are playing by the same rules, then you can sort of see through. It's kind of boring. I mean, it's like uh, it's like mm-hmm. uh, playing against um, you know playing against a personalityless opponent. Um, but if you're playing a system where uh, you you can tune that system to a certain level of difficulty, um, and it's kind of trans, it's it's kind of it's it's not obvious to the player why it's so difficult or it is but you, you it's simply the way the rules are set up and i think that that that's i mean the ai can can be quite challenging and not be um not be sort of transparent i think the problem that, that some people that i've talked to about solitaire games is that they just don't want to play a game by themselves that they want to play against another person and the socialization of the game is Part of what makes gaming attractive to them, and I, I understand that. I mean, I if, if well, we all, we all, I think we would all rather play somebody else or a group of people, if right. I mean, I mean, I guess so. I mean, I think there's there. Well, I don't know about that because I, I think that there are, you know, there are experiences that you can have with gaming that are preferable on your own. I mean, if you want to sort of tell a story, if you, it's kind of like a book, right? I mean, if you get into a book and you sort of become you know, engaged with it, and 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 it's a personalized experience the way you happen to experience that book. Then I think you get get something out of that uh, that's mm-hmm. different from what it would be if you know you were watching a movie with a bunch of people. And even if you're watching a movie with a bunch of people, you're you're sort of getting your own experience of it. So I think I think solitaire games can be the same way that you know you you sit down, you play this game, 
it turns out a certain way and you experience it in that way sort of all as your own sort of narrative that's that's uninterrupted by your interaction with somebody else so I, I think that solitaire games can be can be uh, just perfectly valid um, sort of narrative experiences it's just that some people aren't interested in that and, and that's yeah. fine I mean if you if your whole goal for gaming is to sit down with your buddy and push some counters and 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 you know rise each other back and forth that's great and then yeah solitaire games aren't going to work for you in that case the other, the other problem could be that the older solitaire games not all of them but a lot of them were just too much work to play solitaire mm-hmm. in other words if if you know you don't want to have to do you know one of my theories on whole solitaire design is you don't want to have the solitaire player working too hard to play the ai because you want to you want the player to concentrate on what he's doing mm-hmm. so you have to design the system so that he can sit there and, and zap through the, you know, figuring out what the AI is going to do without rolling on page 42, then turn to page 52 and pull 15 dice. And if this, then that, you know, you don't want to go through all that. You know, it should be bang, bang, bang. This is what they're doing to you. Now you go. So right. you say that, Herman, but I can think of, uh, just like in any, uh, multiplayer game there's a range there like i think of dawn of the zeds which i kind of want to talk about in a moment i think mm-hmm. of dawn of the zeds is relatively complex like it took me several games of that to make sure i was moving the zombies correctly and that right. i was uh, there, there were a lot of times when i'm first playing that where i've totally got my nose in the book and i'm having to teach myself and i have to play through several teaching games and i think dawn of the zeds is relatively complex but there's a different kind of payoff with that complexity you know the narrative has more variety it can be richer but then that you know autumn and sunset which i just mentioned is is simple almost to a fault like autumn and sunset is basically saying let's shuffle these cards with events from uh you know what the ottoman empire had to deal with in world war one and then the order of these cards is going to be the narrative and it's pretty much that simple uh and they both offer different kinds of experiences on a on a on a sort of a sliding scale from simplicity to complexity. Um, I had a friend of mine who, after I wrote an article about Dawn of the Zeds, he was like, wow, that sounds really cool. Uh, could you teach me how to play? And he's, <laughs> not, and he's not a board gamer. And I basically right. had to say to him, no. <laughs> <You're kinda laughs> it's a solitary game, and I'd be happy to help you, but you have to want to sit down and learn it. You have to be the kind of guy who's willing to tackle a fairly challenging war game Otherwise, you know, you should stick with something like Ottoman Sunset. It sounds like In Magnificent Style is, is more on the, the, the simpler, more elegant uh, side of the scale. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I do think that, uh, yeah, it's, uh, you know, there, there's a, a wide range of experiences for people who want to play solitaire games, just mm-hmm. like there is for multiplayer games, just like there is for, this is something Bruce and I talk about a lot, for computer games. Uh, you know, you, you can have some that are very accessible, some that are more obtuse, but more rewarding in a unique way. Uh, and I'm just delighted to see the range of them in solitaire games. And it seems like you have have been at either end of that range. Oh, well, thank you. I, I want to. I know we're gonna. We're gonna move on from magnificent, in magnificent stuff. I just want to point out a couple things. Just you talked about the map. I think that the way that um, you know you have these different sort of points on the map, which um, Tom. Uh, wrote something uh, that I thought was very perceptive in a recent article um, about um, the and I Tom I can't I forget where it was and <laughs> what the exact wording was but it stuck with me and maybe you can help clarify it was something about the um, points I think it was regarding imperialism too it was that points on a map uh, sort of take on their own personality. Um, 
and that uh, you know that sort of familiarity creates uh, uh, you know kind of you build a world out of that familiarity and and the the way Herman that you put you the the Gettysburg map just happens to be a little asymmetric you've got the angle where mm-hmm. um, the Confederate troops uh, get exposed to more fire but it's only in yeah. one part of the Cross map fire. Yeah, yeah exactly. And so, you know, it's not just like you're, it's not like a bowling alley where you just march all these pins down, you know, from one end to the other. It's, uh, you know, there's part of it that's asymmetric. Wait, when you um, said nine lanes, Bruce, that's totally what I thought of. It just sounds like, it just really does sound like a bowling alley and you're yeah. just using, moving your units down these empty lanes. Uh, yeah, I'm not and, sure that's not the case. Yeah, and it's not. I mean, it's really, I mean, I think it's really cleverly done. And then you sort of have, because you have different, different places where, you know, you cross fences. Um, and and the fence, of course, is is at an angle because the Emmitsburg Road was at an angle to the. Uh, yeah, I was line. just going to say the, the actual battlefield helped out with that. So yeah. when I was designing it, I said, "Oh, look at this! It cuts diagonally across, so different sections of the advance are going to hit this thing at different yep. times." Right. Because so, you're right. I didn't want it to be this monolithic. You know, everything happens the same way across the board. Each each section should have a different personality to it. Yeah, so you had you had a little bit of I agree. It, it, all, it all kind of fell together, but I think that the the whole map has a personality to it. You know, you have, you know, uh Trimble and Pettigrew have, you know, the different have different lanes and or whoever, you know, whoever you can I think you can set them up any way you want. But um you have different um sort of narratives for each of the each of the generals and their three uh their three brigades and uh, they get to different ports portions of the map and there are houses where they you know you can sit there and take advantage of the of the the defensive bonus but at some point you got to move because you're not going to win the game by sitting in a house Um, exactly well that's why we intentionally i intentionally made the uh, the game very short it's only five turns right because when i was play testing i was going like well wait a minute if i make this too long the guys you know you're just going to take your time getting across the board and eventually Mm -hmm. you'll get there and i said no no no. there's good there's got to be some it has to be anxiety, right? But, you know, but that's, there has to be, yeah. That's the great thing about you know because that's your AI, right? I mean, you you are able to tune exactly. You know, you you play it a bunch of times and you think, okay, well, you know, six turns is really kind of too long, but four turns isn't enough turns, and you sort of get to, right. Or I'm just making those numbers up, but you know, you you sort of you figure out what you think is an appropriate challenge and you can just start peeling things off or adding things right because it's all arbitrary uh it's not it's not like you have well you know i'm moving my guys three spaces so now that the ai has to be able to move his guys three spaces a turn and what rules am i going to have for him to move his units three spaces a turn and you know when he makes his move am i going to see that's an obviously a stupid move but i have to do it because the rules say i have to do it so by taking all that out of the equation, just saying, well, you know, if if I'm using these rules for movement, let's figure out how often my guys are going to break and how catastrophic that's going to be and whether you can, you know, even if using – because the way the game plays out, you know, even if you're sort of optimally managing the odds, I mean, you have to get a bit of luck or you're not going to be even close to winning. And then there are the events that get pulled out of the cup. You know, if those come out against you, um, you, you know, you're kind of hosed. So there's a whole lot of things that have to come together, and then you have to sort of manage things just so, and then winning is really satisfying uh, in a way that winning against a, a, a robot opponent that you obviously saw why, what they were doing and why wouldn't be. So I think that that's, 
that's the kind of um, it's like playing blackjack against uh, you know against the house. Uh, <laughs> right. And I'm so. a big I'm a big believer in chaos in my gaming and especially my solitaire game. But it's got to be manageable chaos. It can't just be arbitrary chaos. So, uh, you know, like in a magnificent style, you you have to do risk management is basically what you're doing. And, right. and right. you're right that that dice matrix. If you play over the course of a, you know a game, those dice are probably going to come out average. You know, you're mm-hmm. going to roll a box cars, a couple of snake eyes. So the whole idea is, you know, well, when when do you when do you feel you need to make your moves based on the odds and mm-hmm. and what shits have come out and what shits haven't come out? I mean, it, it's not just an arbitrary decision. You do have to pay it pay attention to the chaos. I guess is you know, uh, and that's a big thing with Zeds and. Uh, even uh, I have another solitaire game called The Spoiled Victory, which is on Dunkirk, where the Germans mm-hmm. you're actually on the defense and trying to evacuate, and it's the same idea. You know, th- these events are coming up, and and you're managing the risk constantly. You know, when do I pull back and risk mm-hmm. exposing mm-hmm. a hole? And so, I mean, that that that's a big aspect of solitaire design, I think, is that that chaos risk management. Well, you mentioned Zeds, and I know Tom's dying to talk about the Zeds. <laughs> so, Tom, talk about some Zeds. What do you think about Zeds? Uh, so, Herman, are why on earth would you, a guy obviously in history, why on earth would you make a zombie game? Are you just pandering to the marketplace? There, let me throw that at you. <laughs> <laughs> well, that started uh, back in the day. I played Zulus on the Ramparts. Uh-huh. History, right? Boring history. Okay. Right. Right, Zulus on the ramparts. I'm playing this, and I'm going, oh, this is kind of cool. These guys, these Zulus are coming up against the, the the fortress, and they're all besieged, and somehow the Z in Zulus got transformed <laughs> into zombies. And I'm going, wait a minute. Why can't these guys be zombies? You know, and wow, that would be really cool. Because as much as I like to do historical gaming, uh, you know, designing fantasy and sci-fi is really... In some aspect, you know, not, you don't have all that historical research you have to do, you know. And I love doing it, but once in a while, you'll want to design a game and just design a game without worrying about, you know, what regiment is where and who's in, you know, what's this guy's commander rating and all this. You know, so now I'm looking at this Zulu, this Zulu game and I'm going, zombies, zombies, and and wow, this would work perfectly. And just think of the narrative you can create. So it just actually started like that. I, I wasn't in a I mean, I was a, as much of a zombie fan as anybody else would be, I guess. You know, you know I love the old traditional movies and everything. And I said, but wow, this would be a great vehicle for a game, you know. And Had you done a State of Siege game before? Is this your only State of Siege design? Uh, yeah. So State of Siege, for the listeners, is, uh, and I'm a huge zombie aficionado, so the moment I, I think the first State of Siege game I played was the French Revolution one, and I can't, you know... Levy on Mass, yeah. Yeah, exactly, Levy on Mass. Uh, and the, the whole concept of State of Siege is that you sit in a hub in the middle of the map, and events come out, and dice are rolled, and things happen where these tracks move in towards the hub from different directions, and you have to push them back. That's that's the basic mechanics of it. And I can't imagine anybody who's a zombie aficionado who sat down to play Levy en masse and didn't think, oh, this is like what the French Revolution would be like if you thought of it as a zombie siege, you know, a, a horror <laughs> mode, where everything's coming in at you. So I'm a little surprised it took them uh, that long to make a zombie that's, that's fun, siege. It's game. funny you should say that, because when I when I wrote to Alan, I said, I have this idea for a game, but I'm sure you already have one in the hopper. <laughs> 
And he said, no. I was like, well, you got to do it. You got to do zombies. I mean, zombies sell. Zombies uh, zombies are exciting. They're a hot thing, you know. And, oh, I don't know. <laughs> you know, I said, no, I, I'm going to do this. And uh, it, 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 I did it. And, you know, the funny thing is, the first time I did it, I did it wrong. He actually rejected it. So why did you reject it? Wait, wait, wait. No, yeah, I, yeah, I, I have why? heard you talk about this before, and uh, yeah. So, so explain what how this well, sort of iterated. When I first when I first designed it, I designed what I knew, which was wargaming. So I designed it to wargamey, mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, he said, "Well, no, you know, this is a states of siege game, so you have to approach it from that angle." And I had to get out of that wargame frame. I mean, I know, I know. Before you said it is kind of wargamey for a states of siege or a solitaire game, but um, so I had to redesign the concept away from that strict. Now you'll notice I really went away from war games because if you notice uh, on the fighting table, I don't use odds. I don't say two to one, three to one. I use even, double, triple. So I really mm-hmm. tried to get away from. Even oh, oh, I see. That's <laughs> sneaky. Yeah, because yeah. I look at that and I still think, wait a minute. Yes, he does. It's a combat results table, of course. It's just like a war game, but you're just talking about the terminology. Right, I got rid of all the wargaming terminology because I, I know we were talking about so there's people who won't play war games. So I said, well, all right, I'm going to have to disguise this a little bit and just say double, triple, you know, greater than and even, and, and it won't look like an odd stable. Right. Now, people, there's people who want, oh, it's got an odd stable, I'm not going to play that. Right, right. Uh, and you also, uh, part of what's going on in uh, Dawn of the Zeds is there are very specific narrative beats that come up with the cards. I mean, there's stuff that's mm-hmm. baked into the gameplay system about Dr. Martus and his assistant, I think her name's Nicole, uh, and and uh, and certainly the way that the different characters have different powers. Um, and if I'm not mistaken, you, you, got, you enlisted the help of uh, a writer, right? Like, this wasn't all stuff that you came up with. That's David, David Spangler, yes. Okay, and he added a lot of the sort of zombie mythos specific flavor. Uh, David Spangler sounds familiar well, to me. Is I'm he, sorry. Did he write, does David Spangler write a bunch of novels? Uh, he's got a bunch of books out. He's he's yeah. basically a spiritualist. Uh, uh, okay, sorry. Continue. Okay, <laughs> um, but he does. He's got like two dozen books out or something like that. But but there's a guy that that has written a bunch of books about. Um, like this alternate universe where the South won the war, and it's basically cross. Uh, just wondering that... if that's sorry. I, I just totally derailed us. Tom, yeah, continue. Turtle Turtle Turtle. While you do that, I'm gonna look it up. Okay, you look that up. Yeah. So anyway, you, you you worked with David Spangler on on this, right? Right. So I got the basic premise of the zombie game, which was okay, great. You know, there's zombies coming in. We got a few characters and all that, and that was basic. That was the first edition of the game, which. I don't. I don't even know if you've ever seen or played the first edition of the game. I, I came on board for the second, the Gold Banner re-release. Right. So, the uh, the classic nightmare scenario in the second edition was actually the first edition of the game. So it was a smaller, more controlled environment. It was you know a straight on zombie game. Mm-hmm. So when we came up with the second edition, what happened was I, I had done uh, an expansion to the first one called The Walking Zeds, but then. Uh, VPG changed over to their gold banner processing, so we had to basically do a whole new game, mm-hmm. you know, with the new pieces and the new laser cutting, which was great for the second edition game because those pieces are amazing. Uh, and, you know, what happened was is that the game, you, you, we just needed more. I said, like, well, I can't just add more, more zombies and more. We need 
we need to add more narrative. We need more storyline. We need, we need more different characters. Uh, other stuff's got to go on. And you know, my imagination only <laughs> goes so far. So I came up with the idea with the tunnel track, and and then uh, Dave Spangler. You know, we said we got to take the story somewhere else. So he wrote this little novelette type of you know write up on where well, how's this story going to go. So he came up with Doctor Martus, and we said right, we needed an evil guy in there. So he came up with Doctor Martus, and he's going to do this, and. It just, I tell you, it just grew tentacles. It just got <laughs> bigger. It, you know, there's more characters and the more different types of Super Zeds you add on there, you need more rules to cover all the different things. But they have to be different because they have to have their own characters, characteristics. And the tunnel track is a totally different set of uh, circumstances, you know, with the catacombs and all that. So, yeah, it just grew and grew and grew. And we actually have a, we actually working right now, we're having another expansion come out called the Director's Cut. Which has more stuff. When, by the way, when uh, what's the timeline for this? When can I play the director's cut? Director's cut is we just finished playtesting on it, so we're doing the artwork on it now. Please hurry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, uh, uh, Herman, I want to point out, and this is going to be some sort of highfalutin, uh, fancy pants talk that I don't know Uh-oh. if you think in these terms or not. Get ready for this. Mm. I was wearing a beret. Myself. <laughs> <laughs> right, let me adjust my beret here. So you mentioned before in talking about creating an AI for for your your games or for for solitaire games, uh, making sure and putting the clock on in magnificent style. You want the player to feel anxiety, uh, mm-hmm. and that clearly is part of what's going on with states of siege. This anxiety about oh, all this stuff is coming in. I can't hold it back. You know, I don't have the resources to push all the tracks back, so I have to pick which one do I push back. And there's a sense of anxiety as things are closing in or as the clock is running out or whatever. I think zombie mythology, this idea, because zombies are our generation's invention, just like, say, Godzilla is the the invention of the Japanese in the wake of being nuked in World War II. Zombies Mm -hmm. are this invention, this sort of post-Vietnam era, this existential era. uh, We created these monsters as a manifestation of of our anxiety about the inevitability of death. You know, death, dead flesh is, is relentlessly closing in and it will eventually claim you. And zombies are the literal incarnation of that fear of death. So, so I think when you pair the anxiety that you're talking about in a solitaire game, you know, whether it's forcing the player to deal with the clock or having too many tracks move in on him than he can manage, uh, and the anxiety that I think is fundamental to zombie mythology. Uh, Dawn of the Zeds, I feel, is one of the best zombie games on any platform for that connection of narrative and mechanics. Uh, so just a, a tip of the beret to what you've accomplished there. And well, thank you so much. As you mentioned before we recorded, it has paid off. You said that Dawn of the Zeds has sold more than all of your other games combined? Yeah. Uh, as yeah. a history guy, how does that like, – like, obviously, you're, you're pleased about that, but it sounds like one of your main interests is in history. Um, you obviously enjoy dealing, as you mentioned, with sci-fi and fantasy. Uh, how does that make you feel? Like, uh, do you have any ambivalence about the fact that everybody gobbled up the zombie game uh, and that history is, is in the shadow of that? Or, I don't know, maybe I'm putting too many uh, judgmental terms on it by talking about shadows or whatnot – but how does that make you feel that it does so well compared to the historical games? It makes me feel, as a designer, it makes me feel great. It really does because okay. I, I read I read the AARs on Board Game Geek about Zeds, and many times I laugh out loud 
because people just get so into telling that story about what Sheriff Hunt did at the bridge. And as a matter of fact, your review was, I think your review is one of the best reviews I've read on the game. Because you went and you, you mentioned all these little anecdotes about what happened to you, right? Um, and that's what the game's all about. Mm-hmm. So as a designer, if I'm getting that kind of feedback and it's making me laugh and making me happy, then it's fine. And then now the historical side of it, that's more of an intellectual pursuit, I guess. You know, can I can I make this battle, you know, satisfy the grognards? Do I get good feedback that this is realistic? So, I guess it's just di- touching different parts of your brain or your your passions mm-hmm. in a different way. So, I have I'm, I'm thrilled that Zed's does well. You know, my 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 historical friends all laugh when they you know say, oh you know how's your how's your Mars Latour game doing? I said oh well it's doing fine. <laughs> But everybody's buying the zombie game, you know. <laughs> but it's it's great. It's fun, you know. Hey, look, it's all gaming. It's all adventure. Right. It's all fun. So uh, permanent. You know, of, it makes me yeah. think of the way that some creative. I think of movie directors. The, the way that that movie directors, for instance, they'll do a crowd pleaser and then they'll do one for themselves. Uh, like the Coen Brothers, for instance. These guys are genius filmmakers. They'll do something like True Grit with celebrities like Jeff Bridges and Matt Damon, and then they'll do. A little movie called A Serious Man with no one famous in it, and it's about you know the Jewish obsession with existentialism, and and then they'll do another blockbuster with George Clooney, and uh, so it sounds kind of like the game design equivalent of that. Like you throw out a zombie one, and that lets you make something about Dunkirk and about Pickett's Charge. It's funny you should say that because my actual my little my little pride and joy from a historical point of view Mm -hmm. is full of eagles. Now I have a I have a certain love for the Franco-Prussian War and the Austro-Prussian War, which is what happened in Europe ten years or so after the Civil War here. Yeah, Conagras. Who, who doesn't love that? Yeah, exactly. So it's that transition from the Napoleonic style of warfare to the World War One style. You know, the killing of the World War One style. So this transitional period are guys running around in Napoleonic uniforms getting slaughtered on the battlefield by modern technology. And but in the sense of the Franco-Prussian one, the history of it is that, you know, you're talking about the German empires come to now. It's setting the stage in this war for World War One, World War Two, because uh, the German empire comes to fruition there. You know, they, they gain control of Europe in this war. So when I did Mars Latour, I said, all right, I'm going to do a game on the Franco-Prussian War because that's one of my real passions. And I, and as a designer, Mars Latour is a very tough battle to do correctly because the Prussians start out at this battle outnumbered 8 to 1, and they attack. <laughs> so how do you turn that, you know, and the French commander is just very inept, and so how do you turn that into, a, a you know, an entertaining game? So t- for me, that was... That was a real challenge, and, and the thing that I'm most proud of is this little game on Mars Latour, which, by the way, <laughs> strangely enough, I gave to Gene Billingsley at GMT. I said, here, try this game. I'm really proud of it. I like it. And that's what got me to the P500 for my game called, at any cost, Mets 1870, which is about the entire campaign that encompassed Mars Latour and, and the Battle of Gravel at St. Privat. So sometimes it does pay off to, you know, to go with your passion project. Are these both, by the way, head-to-head or, or solitaire games? Those are they're head-to-head. Okay, uh, your upcoming games, Stonewall's Sword and Hammer and Sickles, uh, also head-to-head or solitaire games? Those are both head-to-head. Okay. The last solitaire game I did is Spoiled Victory. Um, that's the Dunkirk one. That's the Dunkirk one, right? Uh, what do I got coming up as far as solitaire? Uh, God, 
I got so many projects going on. It's it was the great thing about designing is that once you you know, you, it, thankfully Alan Ember gave me a chance to be published for the first time, and uh, you know, if it wasn't for him, I wouldn't even be here. Uh, what was your first it, name? It was Gettysburg the Wheatfield. Okay, and that was with Victory Point then. Yeah, yeah, and then right after that came Dawn of the Zeds, and then came my runt of the litter, a game called High and Tight, which is a baseball game because I love baseball. So I said, mm-hmm. uh, again, like I said to you guys before we started the broadcast, you know, all my designs I try to think out of the box. I don't want to do with something that, you know, has been done a hundred times before. Even my Gettysburg games, despite the fact that I'm going to have three games on Gettysburg. They, they focus on a different part of Gettysburg. So they're not about the entire battle of Gettysburg. They try to focus on specific events that haven't been concentrated on before. So even with High and Tight, which was my baseball game, another passion of mine, I, I intentionally designed it to look nothing like Stratomatic or APA or anything else like that. It's a totally different type of baseball game. It's all about the strategy of the game and the flow of the game and the narrative of the game. So... After that came in magnificent style, and then I worked with White Dog to do Duel of Duel of Eagles, and then a spoiled victory with White Dog, and then I got Stone Little Sword coming out for White Dog, and then the two GMT projects. Uh, it's just it's great, you know. Once you have a little bit of success, and 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 you get the you get the idea of how to design properly, and you know, it, it, most important thing is to play test the crap out of the games. You have to because you were saying before about. Well, how did I know to go to five turns as opposed to six or eight or four? That's mm-hmm. all just sitting down and playing the games to death, right? And you know, and having friends around who are willing to you know sacrifice some of their you know their real game playing time to sit there, <laughs> and, you know, right? And get these things worked out. And I think you know, unfortunately, a lot of games get to the market and they're not developed and playtested properly. Yeah, well, that, I mean, that's a big problem. I think that you know you see these. Uh, these games that come out, and it, in the old days, I felt like there was some, uh, uh, I don't know, it, people weren't going to be playing games uh, as, you might buy a game and you might play it, if you played it, I remember when I was when I was in high school, if I played a game face-to-face against somebody else two or three times, that was like, that was huge, like we had just, we just gamed it to death, right, because we didn't, I didn't have that many people to play against. Um, but now, you know, you see these games that are coming out on, you know, various in the various formats, and and the 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 standard is sort of like, well, if I play this game a hundred times, then each side should win exactly fifty times, or else it's unbalanced. Which which seems to be an incredibly high standard for a, a very complex system. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just wonder how you feel about that. If there's, if you think that the you know, how much playtesting, how, how balanced does the game have to be and how much playtesting do you actually have to put into it to, to, to feel that you've done your due diligence? Well, as far as historical games, um, you have to, if you're recreating a particular battle or campaign, you have to be able to reach the historical conclusion at least some of the time. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I mean, that's a... That's a big standard that you have to meet. If you're playing a game on, well, you know, on Gettysburg or whatever, and yeah. th- the Confederates are always winning, <laughs> mm-hmm. or you know, that that that's a major um, 
endpoint that you have to reach in your in your playtesting. So if you're sitting with your friends and you're, you're playing this out, you have to be able to feel that you're recreating this. It, it doesn't have to happen all the time, but it has to be possible that you re- reach that historical conclusion. Mm-hmm. And um, it has to feel like the era that you're you're portraying. You know, you want to. You don't want a lot of those game systems were cookie cutter game systems, and they said oh, it's World War II, it's Civil War, it's Napoleonics, and it's like the same mechanics. And that's why I use a lot of, um, in this new system I developed, it, there's a lot of event chit, well, kind of like in Magnificent Style 2, these event chits that I worked into the chit pull system, they, they're the ones that really elicit the flavor of the era. So when you're playing Mars Latour, you feel like you're playing Franco-Prussian War, and it's not going to feel the same way as if you're playing Hammer and Sickles, it's going to feel mm-hmm. like the Civil War. So mm-hmm. from a historical point of view, you really want to get out that flavor, that character of the era you're playing. Can I, can I, uh, so that this flavor of the era that you're talking about, that's fascinating to me that you bring that up. And I wonder if there's any way other than, you mentioned the cards, and, and I think cards are a great asset. Bruce has talked about this a lot, uh, in terms of, of, of adding, uh, flavor and mechanics you can get so specific with cards you know a little bit of artwork the name of the card and then as long as what it does somehow ties into that sensibility uh can you think of a way other than cards that you're expressing this feel of the era that you're talking about well i think the cards and the the, i use chits i actually well Mm -hmm. i use both but i mean the chits Mm -hmm. seem to go faster and can more easily flow into the activation process um the problem was in the old, you know, the old days, they would just have ten pages of rules, special rules to get the flavor. And now you can use the chits and the cards. They're just a more efficient way of doing that. Um, are there other ways to do it? I, I haven't thought of any yet. Um, I'm going to keep working on it, though. But I think that there's a flavor that you get sort of in the mechanics themselves, right? I mean, and I always thought about that. I think this bizarro kind of concept of the idea that you're sort of touching history when you sort of pick up um, pick up counters and you move them on a map and it, what you're doing on the map is sort of it somehow is mimicking this this idea of history that you've picked up from somewhere and I don't know where it might be but it probably you know it's from the history channel if it's from you know 10 books about some subject that you're really interested in and every time you read about a subject or every time you watch a show about I don't know the Battle of Midway right uh, there's something that you take from that. You take, mm-hmm. you know, oh, there's, you know, the, the, this the idea of, you know, for, so for Midway, it would be like the idea of uncertainty, right? You don't know where the enemy is. And right. things happen very suddenly, and, 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 and the, the sort of the calculus of the battle changes instantly. And then you have to react to the to this new battle calculus that, after a whole bunch of play, sort of all sort of flipped on a dime. And, 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 and no matter what the what the period is, I think that you have uh, you have some sort of general idea that you get, and then you have to put that into the game somehow. And so you have to have your mechanics have to mirror your. I mean, because we all, you know, I wasn't at the Battle of Midway. I wasn't at the Battle of Waterloo. I wasn't at any battle. So mm-hmm. every, but but I'm really interested in history. So every time I recreate one of these things on a map, it's going to be. It may be the most ridiculous ahistorical thing that has ever happened, but if it corresponds to the way that I've sort of assimilated 
and understood the battle through you know general media and 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 historical scholarship which is probably what a lot of other people who are interested in the same subject are also going to share we sort of we we've, we've constructed this idea of the battle and then the game kind of has to feed into that or we're going to feel like it's like it's not accurate or historical or interesting right. to us even though we may have a completely false construct made Right, and you're always going to argue, there's always going to be some guy who thinks it's totally wrong based on his research and reading, or he's got something new. You know, uh, yeah, I mean, it's a happy medium where everybody, you know, you, you kind of take the common ground and you live with it, and then, you know, you add your little twist or interpretation on top of it. It's funny, something you said before about the midway and having something weird happen that you have to react to. That's exactly what I try to get out of uh, my designs. I'm not a big... I go, you go, guy. Mm-hmm. You know, let, let's face it. You know, no game you play is going to be able to, you know, quote unquote, simulate or be realistic as compared to the real battle. Right. But my theory on on, on historical design is that, uh, you know, chaos is the norm. Right. Order is the exception. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I know games have always been done in the opposite order. It's always been, hmm. you know, all, all the all the Russians in Russia are going to move now, <laughs> and all the Germans in Russia are going to move now. And I know exactly when you're going to move, you know, and I know exactly what happens when I attack you with three to one odds. And right, right, you know, right. it's it's too much of a known thing. So, but it, when, you, when you read enough military history, you realize that man, things things went wrong all the time. Attacks were always uncoordinated. And if they were coordinated, it was an amazing exception. So, you know, my favorite mechanic now is this chip pull thing. And and you. so what happens is I'm sitting opposite you and we're going to pull chips out of a cup. And I don't know, I have no idea what's going to come up next. I have no idea if this brigade is going to move or this left-hand brigade or your brigades are going to go twice. So what does that do to me as a player? That... To me, as a game player and a designer, I'm saying, well, this is what I want. I want you thinking plan A, plan B, plan C, and plan D. You know? Right. What happens if he goes twice? What happens if I go twice? What happens if we're splitting our moves? What happens if my entire right flank has to activate before my left flank? Right. To me, that's more accurate, um, a real commander's decision-making process than... You know, I get to move all my guys, and you can't do anything. You know, right. Herman. So, that makes, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. No, go ahead. So that that makes me think of two particular games I want to ask you about. Uh, one of my favorite recent games is a it's a first time developer, a guy named Joel Toppin, made for GMT a game yeah, called Navajo Wars. Mm-hmm. Um, and Navajo Wars, uh, again, I think of this as a as a, a connection of theme and mechanics. It's every bit as canny as what you did with uh, Dawn of the Zeds. In Navajo Wars, it's about the Navajo dealing with uh, first, first the Spanish and eventually the Americans. Um, and the AI in that game, as it were, is a set of chits. You know, you talk about chits. And you, you line up a column of chits, and this represents exactly what the AI is going to do. And you can see, okay, they're going to do this expansion, and they're going to build a mission, and then they're going to send out this size of a raiding party, and then they're going to steal a slave from my families. You can see exactly what they're going to do, and it's all there in front of you. And you can respond accordingly. But what they do and what, what the mechanics do is sometimes one of those chits will flip 
or it'll change position with a set of reserve chits. And there's a, there's a different set of chits for the Spanish. There's a different set for the Americans. So as you're playing, you have this sense of, okay, this is what the guy is going to do. This is what the AI, you know, the, the, the white colonists are going to do. And this is how I'm going to respond. But every now and then, they'll completely change their mind. And there's this sense mm-hmm. of not being able, able to understand another culture, that, that, that fundamental hmm. lack of relation, of understanding that the Navajo, Navajo had with the Europeans expressed in these chits suddenly changing their minds and completely screwing up what you thought they were going to do, even though you have a basic concept of it, you know, lined up right there on the board. Um, right. So it, it makes me think of what yeah, you're talking about with those chits. Yeah, I, that's I, a great concept. Joel, Joel's a great designer. Man, and for a guy, uh, for that for that being his first game, I'm just, I'm blown away by some of the stuff he does in that game. Oh, um, yeah. It uh, actually makes me think of a game the other day I was thinking about mm-hmm. the other day when I was walking the dog. Which I do a lot of my thinking while I'm walking on the dog. Hmm. Doing a, an ultimate chaos game, doing it as an alien uh, alien race called the Chaos, and <laughs> they have no logical. It's exactly what you were just saying. You know, you, you think that people would do logical things, and you try to plan right. for logical things. Well, the, this alien race does everything totally randomly. They'll attack at one to ten, or retreat at ten <laughs> to one. It's just, it's totally random, and you have to figure out how to survive in this environment of just totally random alien beings. That'll put it in my back pocket somewhere. Yeah. And that, by the way, so that sounds fascinating, but then part of me, like if I was your producer, Herman, I would yes. be, well, that's a cool idea, but you need to give some kind of hook. Like there has to be some kind of structure. Like the player right. should have some expectation of what the aliens want or why they're doing something. Like uh, you just want a backstory. I need some lore, Herman. Can can you write uh, a little lore for me? <laughs> uh, you well, mentioned it's funny because Zed's is all about the lore. <laughs> oh, isn't it though? Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, no. And and when we design, you know, I put that together and I said, uh, all right, we, we we have to create a game that's gonna that that the player doesn't mind losing, and he's gonna lose a lot. Right. Right. But he's right. gonna enjoy losing, and if I could design a game that people enjoy losing, then I've accomplished something. So, that, um, yeah, because it's about the story, and 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 you're yeah. right, that ties into the whole zombie. You can only really get away with that with zombies, right? I mean, it's you a say zombie that, but zombies, aliens. I mean, uh, no, here's, another, aliens, aliens here's another example I have, and I, I hate. No, I don't hate to because I'm glad to keep mentioning this game because I love it. Uh, it's autumn, autumn and sunset. So the Ottomans actually failed miserably in World War One. It was their collapse. It was their sunset. Uh, autumn and sunset. The bottom, you know, the worst you can do is the historical outcome. You know, so as long as you do, you can lose that game and still do slightly better than the historical collapse and right. feel right. like you're you're kind of you're, you're, it's not that you're winning, it's just that you're not losing as badly as the actual Ottomans. Right. So I like that baseline there being, you know, the worst you can do is what they actually did. Anything, even if you don't completely win, anything you do above that is is a minor victory. Right. The old Custer's last stand game, you know, if you have exactly. one guy left win, you know. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. Right. Uh, you mentioned you mentioned hating uh, I Go You Go. Uh, do you know the Game of Thrones board game? I, I, I have not played it, but I know that there's one out there. They do a really cool thing where the players simultaneously, like you have little uh, chits that represent different actions. Like, okay, I'm going to tax this province, I'm going to attack that one, these guys are going to support an adjacent attack. And players simultaneously put face-down chits on different territories. 
So mm-hmm. if we're all playing, and I know Bruce has an army next to me, and he puts a chit down on his army, I don't know if it's a defensive action, or if it's an attack, or if he's just taxing there, but I know he's going to do something, so I put down a chit, and we're all, there's this simultaneous kind of bluffing turn, mm-hmm. where everybody is putting a face down chit, then they all get turned up at once and resolved in a certain order. Uh, and I love how that's a variation, partly for pacing, by the way, for keeping everyone always involved, but mm-hmm. I love how that's a variation on, okay, Bruce is going to move and attack, now Herman, you go, and then it's my turn. Um, right. I, I, I love clever ways to subvert that traditional structure, and Game of Thrones did a great job with that. It's all about that that. That thrill of playing, you know, the unknown, the, right, the right. surprise, the chaos. Uh, yeah, but it's also about right, the thrill the of playing. And yeah, what you're saying, you said an important thing is the thrill of playing, right? And I think that that games in the past, or the, the big revelation of Euros, which is sort of a trivial, it's cliche now to say, but I'll say it anyway, is that they always keep people involved, right? So what Tom's describing is people, sort of, even though in an I go you go kind of sense. They take actions together right. that you, it's never a case. Because I remember playing, I remember in college, you know, my roommate and I, we played uh, SBI's War in the East and we set it up. And uh, <laughs> it was a very, it was almost like a solitaire experience because yeah. I would come back from class and then I <laughs> would move. And then <laughs> he, he might come back from lab and he'd be like, Oh, did you move? I'd be like, yeah, I moved. He'd be like, okay, I'll take a look at it after dinner. And, and, and it was, I mean, we're like playing two, cause what's the point, right? I, I mean, he could, I guess he could sit there and, and make sure that I didn't exceed any movement requirements, but, uh, um, you know, or, or like enforce the rules. But I mean, he could sit there and, you know, watch three television shows and I still right. would be done moving. So and, that whole model and, you know, breaks down. And every one of our clubs, and we all have one or two of these guys who just, Analysis, paralysis by analysis. It just, yeah. they just take forever to make their moves. It's like, you know, we're not curing cancer here, guys. Can you just make a move? Mm-hmm. And it's, it, you know, it, it really stopped me from doing multiplayer games anymore because I got tired of sitting there waiting, you know, well, forever. The, the solution to that is just to put enough random element in the game that they can't control for it and it just freaks people out. But, um, right. Put an egg but, timer down. You'd be surprised how different how people play differently when they're under time constraints. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. You should see how differently play. But we we did a blind Napoleonic campaign with a, with an umpire. Oh really? We We're using what VG system? Middle. We used the the Pratson games. Um, what is the name of that? V- I guess it's is it Viva Emperor. Okay. Or Le- uh, the Clash of Arms games. No, it was Pratson. It was a it was a French company. Oh, okay, I don't know. Uh, them. Yeah, uh, so we did an umpired Napoleonic campaign, 1806. I was Brunswick. <laughs> okay. But the the way people, it's a great experiment in, in personalities and the way people handle, you know, gaming when it's a lot more realistic, you know, mm-hmm. and you don't know where the, the opponent is at all and you're trying to follow orders and you're trying to give orders and you have no idea what's going on and people's personalities just change it's unbelievable people who are really nice people turn into these ogres and these awful people because they don't know what's going on and other people are having nervous breakdowns and they're <laughs> yelling at each other and it's amazing it, it, it's it's uh, well, you know and there's there's a certain amount of order that i think the type of person who plays this kind of game wants 
Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's a personality thing. So I'm not surprised that that happens. Yeah. yeah. Because I, okay. I mean, think about the old think about the old board war games where and I just had I, I wrote some articles where I went back and looked at some old you know articles in the general and you know people were I mean they were like they were like chess moves right like look at mm-hmm. all these guys look at these numbers you know if you move this guy here and this guy here and this guy here you get exactly 27 which is exactly right. three to one on the nine that this guy has in this town exactly. right right and and I they were that. yeah and it's I mean but they're but but for a certain I feel like those a certain type of person that was really important to them to be able it was it was a sort of analytical exercise and I think we've right, gotten think, away uh, from that. the first one that was like that that I remember was Russian campaign and I know there was guys who played Russian campaign and they said they had all those open it was like the opening chess moves like you said you know oh well here's the Kiev gambit you know and then right if you do this 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 and this this is going to happen and I'm like oh man I I don't like I don't want to play these games in tournaments you know to me. Right. It's, it's that's chess. That's I, I'm not doing that for that. I'm doing that for the unknown, the adventure of gaming. You know, and to me, that's right. just too calculated. Right. And and there's still guys in our club who, you know, they'll only play the big, you know, huge SPI locking Zox. I go, right. you go. Right. And, right. You know, the right. first time I show them a chit pull thing, and they, <laughs> they look at me kind of stunned. You know. Well, that but go, that's no, very I get to move this division. And guess what? You get yeah. to move that division now. <laughs> oh, oh, what? Really? I go, yeah. I don't want to move that division. Well, if you don't move that division, that's just not going to come up again. So what are you going yeah. to do? You know. So it, it's an interesting exercise in, uh, in humankind, I guess. Right. Well, it's also I think if people feel like you know they want to have a competition of their sort of analytical mechanism uh-huh. against yours, right? And anything that 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 sort of introduces an element of well, you got three chip pulls in a row. So even if you win, that wasn't fair, right? right and it, exactly. regard, regardless of how the you know the system compensates for that or what the advantages and disadvantages are to that, but they just feel like, well, you know, I need to move and then you need to move, and then after we alternate all these different moves, somebody will have been a better analyst than the other person, and they will win, and right. that's how a game should go. And that's you know, and, my, right? And, and actually, that's a big problem I have with guys who post on Constant World. It's it's just kind of this. Uh, well, my brain is bigger than your brain type of mm. stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. And there are guys, you're right, there are guys who, who game and their only goal in gaming is to defeat you so that right. they can get their little victory. Yeah. And that's not why I game. I, you well, know, that's I crazy. Enough, I, mean, yeah. I have enough competition in everyday life at work and everything. When I game, right. I just I have fun. You know, yeah, that's, no, that's, that's always been my editorial comment is that if you're if you're using all of your sort of competitive advantage to you know take uh, Waterloo in cardboard, then you have some seriously misplaced priorities. Probably should be trying. Yeah, then you get something then else. you get those guys who not only do their own move, but then tell you how to do your move. Right. <laughs> I had, I had that with I, I was playing Small World for the first time, and the guys oh, played my it. Goodness. Yeah. And he's, he's telling me, no, no, you can't do that. You can't do that because then he'll do that and he'll do that. And I go, no, I want to do this. But you can't do that. I go, I'm doing this. Now shut the hell up. You know? <laughs> you know, and then you do moves just to spite him, just to piss him off. You know, it's like this. Uh, Herman, having uh, published some board games now, tell me about interfacing with the fans. Like, what uh, do you do? You go to Board Game Geek. Are there? You mentioned the guys on Constant World being a specific type of fan. Uh, what is it like dealing with people who play your games? Uh, most of them are terrific, mm-hmm. and I really enjoy. I, I honestly, 
because I remember the days, you know, when I when I was just playing games, and if the designer would contact me directly, I'd have this big, you know, thrill. Oh, you know, I talked to Ted Racer, or I talked yeah. to Richard Berg, you know. Mm. So, you know, thankfully, I got the opportunity to be on the other side of the fence. So when people write to me on Board Game Geek, I, I, I spend most of the morning sitting there going, I check every one of my game sites on both console and Board Game Geek, and if people ask questions, I try to answer them. And uh, honestly, some of these games are so old that they ask me questions about it, I forget, because <laughs> it's been a couple of years. Now. But, you know, and most of them are really, you know, making suggestions or complaints. Or, and I try to, I try to be polite, because I don't want to... There's, there's a lot of designers out there that just get on these boards and they just ridicule these these fans. And, and I go, well, I don't see the purpose in that at all. I, you know, these people are spending their hard-earned money buying my games. I, you know, I can at least be polite to them and answer their questions. And... I really appreciate when people post nice stuff, and it makes me feel good. It's uh, um, so I, I try to keep up on it all. Um, the, the GMTP 500 things have been uh, a lot of work too, because their fan base is huge, and uh, both games have sites on Constant World and Board Game Geek. So there's a lot of posts on that, and you're always answering questions about what's coming up. And, and what for folks plan- listening who may not know, this is a program where if is it 500 people agree to pre-order, then the game goes oh, forward? Right, no, sorry. Right, so P500 is, I guess you, I guess it, it's Kickstarter-like, you know. Um, they put it up on their P500 page, and people have to pre-order it, so they don't actually take your money, but what you do is you, you, know, you go on the site, and you order the game, and you give them your information, but nothing gets charged to you. And once they have 500 orders like that, it will be published at some point in the future. So they, they schedule it for final art and development and blah, blah, blah. And I mean, it's a long process, but, you know, it's a smart business model for GMT to do that. And other companies do that, but they do it at different levels. I think uh, Legion uses a P250. I mean, each one has a different cutoff because companies like GMT and all that, you know, they're going to do 2,500, 3,000 uh, game uh, print runs. So they have to make sure that they don't get stuck with 2,250 right. <laughs> copies of a game, you know. And when you say it's work for you, is it a matter of answering people's questions who might order or encouraging people to order? Well, or Yeah, see, now that's the whole thing. So now now this P500 thing, so what I have to do is make sure that I get people interested in the game. So, you know, I try to post a lot. You know, people ask questions about the details, and I, you know, I answer that, or I'll just throw a post up there about what's going on with the game and, you know, you got to keep kind of stirring it up a little bit so the conversation goes, and then if you have a new person that comes in to see it, they get excited about it and go order it. So it's kind of a salesman's sure. salesmanship thing a little bit more than just a, you know maintaining your game design and answering questions. This is actually a little bit of salesmanship going on. Well, let, let's hear some of that actually. So as as we're we're winding down here, tell <laughs> us a bit. It, it's hammer and sickles, right? Uh, make me and Bruce want to uh, get on the P five hundred well, program for it. Well, oh, I'm on the oh, right, Well, then you've got to sell me. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Bruce is an easy sell, by the way, for that kind of thing. <laughs> right. So both Hammer and Sickles and at any cost, uh, one's a Franco-Prussian game, the other one's the Civil War game just on Longstreet's attack. The uh, the selling point on Hammer and Sickles is uh, the, whole, the whole premise of the design was to do a playable regimental scale ACW game with Fog of War and Command Control included, and that's where the chits come in. So I designed this uh, as an offshoot of the Duel of Eagles system, this chit-pull system that actually 
not only activates your units, but you also pull events out of there that you as the player have to choose what to do with these events right as you pull them. Mm-hmm. So they are all flavorful as far as the period, the battle, uh, opportunities to do things. And one side of the chip is a unique event. So it'll be like a rebel yell charge or a force march. The other side of the chip is a command event. And what you can do is you can place that command event off to the side on a separate track. And every game's a little different as far as what these command events are. But they're more strategic things like asking for reinforcements or trying to uh, increase the command rating of your leader. So you have to decide right when you pick these chits, are you going to use it on the board for some tactical advantage or are you going to stick it off to the side and bank it for some strategic advantage? Mm-hmm. So uh, that's all done, like I said, with a regimental scale game, which normally requires a lot of playing time. The whole idea of the system was that you know, combat resolution and morale checks are fast. You, you roll, in Hammer and Sickles, you roll four different colored D6s, and those D6s will all tell you the result of the combat, result of the morale check, everything in one shot. Mm-hmm. So you can concentrate on your decision-making, rather than going through lists of modifiers and, and combat mechanics and endless layers of, of processes. Um, How are you doing the, the Fog of War, though? Well, the I mean, Fog it, of War... You, you about the, the Fog of War, you're talking about the built into the, um, into the chip pole, or is there some way where I can't see what the other person's doing? Well, you can physically see the pieces, all right? So, and there's not a lot of markers in the game, so the pieces are out there. The problem, the, the thing with the Civil War game is you can pick, well, one thing I want to mention about the chip pull, so one of the big uh, 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 complaints about chip pull systems is if I pull a chip for the 5th Division and, and I move them, then my opponent knows that my 5th Division guys can't do anything for the rest of the turn, right? Because right. I've already pulled the chip. So what I did is within the events you can create opportunities for the 5th Division guys or some of the 5th Division guys to still do something. So you're never really sure. You're never sure that a unit is in it. You're never sure that a unit's out of it. It's constantly, uh, you know, unknown. Mm-hmm. As far as the division shits, so if you pull an activation shit, let's say I pick uh, Hood's Division, which consists of four brigades. So if I pick, if I pick Hood's Division shit, I pick one of my four brigades, I activate it, I move it. Now I got Hood's division shit. Now what do I do with it? Well, Hood's got a command rating. Let's say it's a four. After all, a die. If I roll a one through four, I can put Hood's shit back in the cup, which means later on I could pick it again and pick another brigade to move. However, if I don't roll a one through four, if I roll a five or a six, his shit goes out, and his other three brigades are basically stuck doing nothing unless I, you know, later draw an event shit. Mm-hmm. So, in that sense, the fog of war affects both sides, because you don't know for sure that a division's going to move, what brigades are going to move, you're not for sure, uh, sure if the other guys, all of his brigades are going to move. So, the fog of war, in that sense, means I don't really know what control I have or what control he has. I, I can completely understand why this would drive some of your more uh, <laughs> a- analytical, hardcore friends crazy. Like, what, what do you mean I can't move Hood's division? This, that's insane. <laughs> right. I mean, you know, one of the selling. I said every chip pull that you pick is going to be a decision for you to make. Mm-hmm. It's, it's going to be something that you have to decide to do. So it's constant tension. Right. I guess I, I, guess I like anxiety and tension in my gaming. <laughs> I don't know. I guess so. 
Uh, and where would <laughs> folks go to? Is, this, is it just GMT.com and you search for Hammer and Sickles? Is that where folks would go to get more information? So it's GMT.com and you go to the GMT Games. Sorry, it's GMTGames.com. Oh, gee, I'm sorry. Yes, GMTGames.com. And uh, there's a P500 tab. So if you click on that, all their P500 games come up and exactly how many orders they have to date. And there's so, some really good ones in there, so people should go there. They, and they, so, uh, they got some great stuff coming out. They got a, a. I'm not a. You know, you talk about subcultures that don't like certain games. I'm not a big block game guy. I, I really don't like block games very much. But I did order uh, Fields of Despair, which is a World War One Western Front block game that looks uh, looks fascinating. It looks very unique. Uh, and when you say you ordered it, it's not a P500 thing. Like it's a done deal that's on its way out. No, no, it's a P500. Oh, it is P500. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So I put in my information, say I'm going to order this when it's ready. So, Fire in the Lake is a P500 game. Of course, it's got 1,500 orders. Yeah, that's one of the coin games, right? Yep. yep. Yeah, I, I think that's one of the coin games. I think hit 500 in four days or something like that. <laughs> so we're doing pretty well. We have 200 on each game, and it's not a week yet. Oh wow! Okay. Congratulations. Yeah. And the other game, uh, just quickly, is At Any Cost, which is basically uses the same system, but it's a brigade-scale game. It's about the campaign that occurred in the Franco-Prussian War west of Metz, which was the Army of the Rhine trying to escape Metz and try to get back to Napoleon III at Verdun, and the Prussians try to intercept them from doing that. And it uses basically the same system, uh, but at a different scale. It's a brigade-level game. And there's the re- and that's the one that's based on uh, Duel of Eagles that Gene Billingsley really wanted to do because they don't have any games from that era other than Resorgimento 1859 is the only other game they have in that era of warfare. So it, it's an opportunity for me to get a game in there that's not been covered before about a campaign. That campaign hasn't been gamed by anybody yet. For is some anybody, reason... Has so anybody done a Conagrad's game? Have you? Uh, I'm going to have the next game I want to do after... At any cost, uh, if it does well, is is Konigsgratz. Okay. I'm just going to be called the jaws. That. It's going to be called the jaws of victory. Okay. And it'll be oh. about to get. You know, it'll expand out just from the Konigsgratz battlefield. It'll expand out to the approach campaign too. So it'll be the whole. Yeah, that's a fascinating campaign. I have a couple. No, of I just ordered it in my mind. <laughs> Let me know when it's on there. I'll order it immediately. Well, it's a fascinating era. A lot of people don't, you know, realize that, you know, in in Konigs, Konigsgratz, the Prussians had the needle gun, right, and the, and the Austrians had smoothbore rifles. Mm-hmm. So the Prussians had the advantage in the small arms fire, but the Austrian cannon were better. And the Franco-Prussian was totally the opposite. The, the French had the Chassepot, which was far superior to the needle gun, but the Prussians had the Krupp's breech-loading cannon, which far, you know, uh, outperformed the, the French gun. So it was this evolution of of uh, armaments going on during this whole period. It's just fascinating. You could also do a collectible card game about that, probably, too. Okay. Count would buy that. Okay. Uh, only if it has zombies, Herman. <laughs> well, Herman, thanks so much for talking. That, that was a fantastic discussion. I could probably go on for another two hours. but um, well, Thank you for having me. I appreciate the invitation. It's been great talking okay. to you. Great. Um, so just for a recap, uh, everyone should buy in magnificent style, including Tom Chick. And then you should should report back, and uh, and thanks a lot. And uh, we will. uh, I've I'm already on. I've already P five hundred your game, so it's up to Tom to take up the take up the banner. Get it up another notch, right? That's right. All right. All right. Thanks, Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. All right. Good night.
Oh my God, Hammer and Sickles. I got stuck. That name. Right? Yeah, I I gotta I gotta give it to him. I mean, that's yeah, you know, just that's that's fine. That's it, it, I appreciate the sense of humor involved there. But, and and uh, I love that we have his grandmother to thank yes. for in magnificent style. Yeah. So uh, so that's the I mean that's the really fascinating thing I think is that you know game mechanics really are the sort of um, marriage of whatever you can come up with mm-hmm. as and your theme and if they fit then it's it comes out like genius and if it doesn't you just feel like somebody really completely missed the point and um, and the idea of a push your luck game where you actively have to make decisions to say you know I know I'm doing well but I'm not going to make it unless I take some risks and then you go ahead and take those risks um, and you can't really win unless some of that comes out you know in your favor really fits well with the idea of sort of a doomed charge by all these guys that are about to get blown away by a, you know an entrenched line of Union troops um, I think it works very well it, it strikes me that uh, Herman is obviously in love with doomed efforts um, in that he's done in Magnificent Style about Pickett's Charge. Mm-hmm. Uh, his, his latest, I think the latest one that you can actually get is the Dunkirk game. Right. Uh, and there's something, uh, you know, a, a central tenet of zombie mythology is that you're, you're going to fail. And actually right. that's, that's part of, I guess, a lot of solitaire games is that if you win a solitaire game too easily, you, you're like, oh, that was easy. I'm never going to play right. again. You, know, you have to get that balance of losing most of the games you play. Um, right. So that makes it a perfect fit for solitaire gaming and uh, doomed efforts. Uh, yeah, and it's a, it's, a, it's a great way to, um, to kind of have an asymmetry as well, right? Because right. you have one side that's you know, kind of the overwhelming force. And you have to sort of stave it off, and only after you get really, really good at the game and understand all the mechanics and all the tweaks and things that you can do to try to tilt the odds in your favor will you actually have a chance of winning, which yeah. is uh, how you want to have any solitaire game. Um, but, and also, uh, you know, having that, that luck. You know, it's just like with the game Pig. Uh, you know, the dice, uh, a lot of it is luck. You, you, you keep playing, you see if the, the luck goes your way. Yeah. Um, uh, I... I I want to call it, I love that he used the word anxiety to talk mm-hmm. about gaming, because one of my favorite definitions of um, specifically video games, but you can apply this to any kind of gaming. You can apply this to, to crossword puzzles, mm-hmm. uh, to, uh, to certainly to board games. Um, one of my favorite definitions is that is is the art of creating enjoyable frustration. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's that juxtaposition of a pleasant word and a negative word. So I love right. the, the idea of anxiety being that as well, because I get this kind of pleasant anxiety in a good game. Right. And and overcoming that anxiety or the challenge that's creating that anxiety is what it's all about, whether it is a crossword puzzle or a board game or whether you're playing Dota or an RPG or right. an MMO or whatever. Uh, so I love that he introduced the word anxiety there. Yeah, and I think that, you know, what's more anxiety-provoking than a bunch of troops marching across a field where they're about to get completely shot down, right? Well, I mean, zombies are more anxiety Well, so you, you, you would be more afraid of zombies? Please, of course. That oh. implies. Come on, then that there's then that affirms that there's some kind of supernatural force beyond your control animating mm. the dead. Would you mm. would you be more afraid of zombies than uh, uh, being part of Pickett's charge? 
Come on, Bruce. I know. I don't know. I mean, those Union troops. I mean, they're just—they're all dug in. I mean, zombies—you shoot them in the head, they're dead. It's that's it, right? I mean, is that how it works? Yeah, but there's always more to take their place. But they move so slowly. I mean, you could just, you know, whatever. You can hold up in a mall and everything will be fine. Just make (laughs) just bolt all the doors in a mall and just kind of, you know. I don't think we mentioned this when we were talking to Herman, but there is a a game that combines zombies and the Civil War. Uh, Yes. It's a Victory Point release. called The South Shall Rise Again. Get it? Uh, And I just want to say, it's terrible. Oh, I felt so awful. I was so psyched for this this idea of combining the Civil War and zombies, but it's just a a dippy little tactical game where you move your dude a hex and you roll a D6 to shoot, and then the Mm. zombies take their turn. And then you move your dude, and I I was so disappointed. Um, Yeah, I don't really understand. I haven't played it, but when I saw what was actually involved in the game, I became a little less interested, um, or a lot less interested. You know, it it seems to me like in the old days where, you know, it was just neat to have a bunch of counters moved around. There was a game called, like, uh, it was called... I, I, wizardry or something like that. It was a, it was a, it was one of those little meta games. Oh, melee! It was called melee. Uh, and then you just had like a fighter, and he moved on these little hexes, and you rolled dice, and uh, you know you had a sword, and you had a shield, and you had modifiers, and that was that was so amazing because look at this! I can have a little picture of a guy on a hex field, and I can roll dice, and it's so much fun, right? Um, and I just feel like the sort of the the state of the art of of board game design has come so far. That, um, that I don't really have any interest in playing games like that anymore. And, and also, you know, the imaginative space that's been described by games since, you know, since the melee, um, you know, fantasy kind of hack and slash uh, cliches were all used up. Um, I mean, they're, they're all tremendously inventive and imaginative worlds that people have made. And, and uh, I think an idea of the... The uh, the Confederate South saving North America from a zombie scourge. That, I mean, that's pretty inventive, um, right? And it's actually it's from some short stories that someone wrote. So I, yeah, yeah I, there's and, and I'd love to see that adapted in some yeah. meaningful way to gameplay. Yeah. And by the way, I think it is the Confederate South dooms America. Like they're on the ropes, so they oh. resort to oh, recruiting zombie like the, armies. Oh, it's like Hitler and and calling in the Norse gods to like. Uh, <laughs> what is that yeah. from? <laughs> Oh, that's a, oh. There's a so interestingly. Um, there's a book that I found when I was digging through my uh, through my old books. As um, I was sorting some stuff out, there's a it's a collection of short stories called Hitler Victorious, and it's just a bunch of guys that wrote a whole bunch of really dark short stories about you know um, a, kind of like a post Hitler world, and one of them is that you know the um, the Nazis were losing, so they did some sort of uh, Hitler uh, called in like the Norse gods, and they won the war. But then, of course, they kind of like took over everything. So now everybody's hosed, and uh, and Loki is on a uh, on a submarine, like on a commando mission with like these these like allied. Tro- it's, it's hilarious. I mean, well, hilarious. It's a uh, it's 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 really. Um, it, it sort of expresses to me how inventive people can get in sort of right. alternate history and science fiction. So. Well, you do know, I don't, maybe you don't know, uh, the Captain America movie begins with uh, the Nazis having an arm of occult researchists called Hydra, and they're looking for Yggdrasil. Uh, mm. the, and, and sure enough, they find it, but then Hydra goes off and does its own thing without Hitler. Right. 
Uh, I, I, and of, I didn't know that. Well, of course, Raiders of the Lost Ark too yes, has I mean, the Nazis looking for the the Ark of the Covenant. So, yeah. Yeah. well, the Nazis were very you know. There's the whole you know Nazis in the occult, and so it's easy to put that together in some sort of. Right. Uh, no science fiction story. So. so why can't someone do a cool thing with that in the Civil War? You know, I the agree. South animating zombies. Instead, uh-huh. we get a, a little tactical, you move, then the zombies move, then you move right. thing. That's right. uh, completely forgettable. Uh, speaking, bad. by the way, of your Hitler thing, uh, uh, Herman Luttman mentioned making a, a game based on Austerlitz. And I just want to say, you, you know, he can do what he wants to, but I kind of think that's in poor taste. <laughs> just saying. Okay, uh, so, so you really don't like Napoleon, is what you're saying? <laughs> hey, he had nothing to do with that, by the right. way. That was long after he was dead. Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. Uh, well, I have been playing. Um, uh, I mentioned this also on the podcast with Volko, uh, yeah. a game about the Cuban um, Revolution against the Spanish. Yes, Splendid Empire. Little War. And they invented, and I, I was really surprised at this. You know, they they basically one of the Spanish generals mm-hmm. who was fighting the rebels. He invented concentration camps, and what? It, it wasn't yeah, it wasn't um, it, it wasn't to exterminate people, but it was it was to control the population so that hmm. the rebels couldn't come in and say, hey, you know, join us. It was to basically just have people live in camps so that the Spaniards could keep an eye on them and hmm. keep the rebels from recruiting them. And it's a gameplay mechanic, and there's even a card that says concentration camps. Really? Uh, yeah. Wow. But it's not, you know, that's, that's controversial. That's, well, that's where the term came from before it became what we know it for, what we know it to mean today because of the Nazis. Um, mm. So... Wow. Well, that's uh, maybe they should uh, maybe they should reconsider now in, in, in the light of new evidence. Well, to be fair, it is in Spanish, so it doesn't oh. sound quite as bad as. So it's a comps de concentración or something. It is something like that. It's got okay. one of those little funny I O N kind of things right, on. Yeah, and, so and, and the and the exclamation point is upside down in front and right side. In front. <laughs> right. Exactly. Okay, uh, so, Bruce, I want to know how you feel about the fact that Herman is doing these great. Uh, he's sort of peering into these historical crannies, and I, I love that. That's what I love about Cuba, a splendid little war. That's one of the things that intrigued, obviously, you about In Magnificent Style. Uh, I love that he, you know, who would do a game about Dunkirk? Nobody, right. because it's, no, but- uh, I love that he's doing that. I, I'm curious how you feel, and, and Herman was a very good sport about this. Obviously, he's delighted. Who could be, uh, who would be anything less than delighted at the success of Dawn of the Zeds? But I'm curious how you feel about the fact that this crazy zombie game has completely outsold everything else this man has done yeah well i mean i'm not surprised i mean i've i've seen um i've seen plenty of kickstarters that um have made millions of dollars just that uh, zombies right right just basically or something you know something that's very uh i don't know um has sort of expresses this the the geek gaming gestalt uh, sort of perfectly, and I think that that's one of those, that kind of thing, and um, uh, kind of underworld, um, and, and minis. If you had if you had uh, miniatures, uh, like the little things that you, uh, not like miniatures, like not um, historical miniatures, like game, um, the, the rules that you wrote, but those games that have plastic minis in right. them. Or, they, you know, they're toys. So you basically yes, it's like getting exactly a free toys. toy with your Happy Meal. Or right, whatever. exactly. Right. right. Yeah. So if right. he made a game like that, I'm sure he would have made a lot of money. But that's, I mean, that's fine. I mean, that's the that's the, the sort of unifying um, what you call it, the unified field theory of, of gaming uh, that that you know everybody likes zombies. So if you just make some zombies, I wonder when the zombie thing is going to play itself out. Do you think it, it will? No, it's not. And so here's here's where I think you're. 
uh, you're a little misguided about this. You, okay. you talk about the, the geek appeal of zombies, and that's certainly there, but zombies are no longer just geek appeal. Like, zombies have gone mainstream. Walking Dead is uh, AMC's biggest show. Uh, you know, Brad Pitt made a freaking zombie movie. Mm-hmm based on a book written by the son of Mel Brooks. You, you know, all this is not just gaming geek stuff. This is mainstream popular appeal. This is, you know, cultural consciousness, zombies. Uh, so I, I'm not the least bit... I, like, I, I think the fact that Dawn of the Zeds is doing well, is doing as well as it is, has less to do with pandering than it's... You know, he's 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 making a game about something that the mainstream knows about. Um, yeah, but I mean, I, I understand your point, and, and those are all good points, but I don't think any mainstream anybody is buying a solitaire game, a solitaire board game about zombies. Uh, fair, fair point. Yeah, I mean, you're right. No, it's it's not breaking it out of the solitaire board gaming niche. That's a that's a niche of niches. People but who it buy is board games right. To play. Yeah, but it, it's solitaire. expanding the Venn diagram out as wide as it can go. Right, but I it's still that. not intersecting like normal people. What are you talking about? That's my whole point. Is that yeah? No, oh, oh, no, right, right, right. The board gaming right. part of it, right? Yeah, you're the right. board gaming sure. part is not intersecting the the people who are watching the zombie movies that are you know just mainstream people. Yes, I agree. But the 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 board the solitaire board gaming Venn diagram is not yet overlapping those people. Right. I'd, I'd like when when is that going to happen? I, I'm much less <laughs> interested in when is the zombie thing going to die out, and more interested in when are normal people going to play solitaire board games? Yeah, I think it's going to happen anytime soon. <laughs> well, it's another thing that I really like that Herman is doing that he's so invested in this little sub genre because for me, and this has been especially true in the last year or so, I, I really see no difference whatsoever except for the mechanics, and I mm-hmm. love that difference between yeah. sitting down to play a computer game alone and yeah. sitting down to play a board game alone and and a lot of the time that I would have spent playing a computer game uh, right. you know to, to write about to review or to sort of just to care about the narrative it creates and to want to mm-hmm. to uh, write a critique of it I am more than happy to leave that computer screen go sit at my kitchen table mm-hmm. and and just have that tactile experience with the chits and um, and with some of the design stuff that's being done uh, like I see no difference between playing at this point for me a computer game and a solitaire board game. So, yeah. well, I mean, I agree that I think that solitaire board games have gotten to the point where they're actually, you know, they're mechanically and, and conceptually challenging, um, as opposed to the the solitaire board games that you know that when when B seventeen Queen of the Skies came out, and I was in, I have to have been in high school at that time. Um, you know, I was I was floored that anybody had thought of making a solitaire board game. You know, a solitaire board war game that I didn't have to find some person to play against, but the but the gameplay was completely pedestrian, right? Right. And um, now the games have become so clever and so inventive that uh, yeah, I mean, I, I I would have no problem um, sitting down with a solitaire board game, but um, you know, there are still things that you can't do with a solitaire board game because because um, you still have the dichotomy of computer games. Being able to incorporate um, more complex sort of interactions than the board games can, and um, if you're, especially from a historical sort of perspective, you know it's it's much more uh, satisfying to play something like Combat Mission than to play a solitaire board game where your ultimate, you know, resolution mechanism is rolling some dice. Whereas the combat mission sort of takes you into this, you know, very, you know, realistically constructed uh, world that you 
are interested in because you've been reading about you know the, the relative slope uh, armor sloping uh, contribution of uh, you know panther frontal armor kind of thing. So I think there's there's still things that uh, that you can't do in, in solitaire board games, but there are things that you you can do that um, you can't do in a in a in a, um, in a computer game and get away with it. I think a lot of the um, uh, the simplicity that you then marry to uh, a system that you you sort of change the rules so that you can automatically you're automatically at a disadvantage but it doesn't seem like you are is is uh, is important because yeah I, I mean it, half of the reason I don't play a lot of computer strategy games is that at some point the, it's clear that the AI is terrible um, right, right. and you can you can scale the the uh, the system in the solitaire board games to be quite good even though the game itself it's not like the AI is good it's just that the system is stacked in such a way. Well, there, there are even two. One of the things that, uh, and this comes through in you talking about what games you've been playing, is one of the signs that solitaire board gaming is flourishing in a new way is the, the range of types of games available. You know, you mentioned B-17, Queen of the Skies, and how that's ultimately kind of pedestrian compared to what we have today. Mm-hmm. But uh, I know there's a game I really liked called Navajo Wars that we talked mm-hmm. about, that was yep, mentioned with Herman, uh, that, that you tried, but you basically... Um, like it takes a lot of time to learn that it's a very yeah. complex game, uh, right. and I know you were curious about it. You just simply didn't have the time. Yeah, I couldn't, Whereas, I couldn't devote to it. Yeah. And, and something like in Magnificent Style, though, uh, or I mentioned Autumn and Sunset several times. Mm-hmm. Super right. simple, super quick. You know, you can get in and out and get this little historical flavoring, uh, a little historical spice with it, uh, very readily very quickly mm-hmm. um or dawn of the zeds you know again super complex a lot of little intricate rules even though herman i think sort of minimized that i do really feel that it's uh it's not necessarily a war gamers game mm-hmm. uh, and he pointed out how they tried to steer it away from looking that way but it's definitely a game for people who are invested in rules uh you have to care okay. about rules um so there's a wide range of those kind of games available. yeah i haven't played it, it you, you you really feel that's the case you, you're, so you're not buying Herman's uh, Herman's demurrals on that point. No, as I mentioned, I some of my casual fr- one of my casual friends who I, I complete I steered him away. Yeah, I don't mm-hmm. think uh, it's it, it's not um, it's not elegant. I'll put it that way. But okay. it's not trying to be. I mean, it really is trying to create a very elaborate narrative mm-hmm. using a lot of rules. Um, mm-hmm. And I love that sort of thing. Uh, but if you're the kind of guy who doesn't really want to read a rule book. You know, stick to like Fantasy Flight released uh, a Cthulhu-themed game called Eldritch Horror. Yes, which it's cooperative, and to me, most of the time I hear cooperative, it just means solitaire. Yeah, like un- unless there's some sort yep. of hidden mechanic where somebody's got a secret or somebody has to do something to get points, I don't really care for a lot of cooperative mm-hmm. games. Uh, so for me, Eldritch Horror strictly solitaire. In a way, every bit as rich as Dawn of the Zeds, mm-hmm. but not as rules lawyer. Oriented, hmm. um, so Interesting. yeah. Um, uh, let's see. So, um, what else stood out for you that uh, Herman mentioned? I I like that uh, the the pickets charge thing made me think of uh, a Gallipoli game. Mm, how lo- how yeah. long till we get that? Uh, till Mel Gibson uh, allows <laughs> us to license that. Uh, I think doesn't he own the trademark on Gallipoli or something? He probably bought that at some point from Peter Weir, and now nobody can make a Gallipoli game without right. paying him money. And yeah, yeah we probably got to pay off Mel Gibson. Yeah, which is a kind of kind of uh, unpleasant thing in itself. Um, 
yeah, I mean, the, the <clears throat> but there's so many. I mean, these these doom charge things. I feel like uh, you know, in in one fell swoop, um, you know, Herman Lutman sort of uh, you know closed the book on 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 um, on doom charge things. I'm really interested in playing uh, Spoiled Victory. I haven't played it yet. That's the um, Dunkirk one. Yeah, it's the Dunkirk one. Um, because it's sort of, it sounds like uh, this is a little different, but, um, you know, in Magnificent Style, the, the way that the game works, I mean, it's very simple. You roll the dice, and if you get a one, um, you it's a bad result, and if you get snake eyes, then it's terrible. Uh, and that's basically the game. And you sort of have to, but, but the way that it's all put together, you know, that we talked on the podcast about uh, the, you know, Arrangement of the the road and sort of the obstacles and how you know each lane of the of the map is its own kind of little separate unique space um, and and I think that that's a really great example of good game development uh, was supposed to design because the design is pretty simple but then you know when you develop the game you say well you know let's what can we do to the game? To, I mean, maybe it was in the design originally. It was just like a, this complete uh, serendipitous coming together of everything. But um, but the way that the um, the way the game works, for example, um, you uh, you have these these hit markers that you flip over uh, and you get results. So you just kind of you place them. Um, if you're firing at the at the Union troops, you 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 place them. Um, in the Union lines, and you flip them over, and you have this sort of uh, um, this. Rev- you reveal your uh, results. It's like they're sitting there. You're just waiting to find. You know, do I want to flip that over? Do I want to? Did I get a hit? Did I not get a hit? It's sitting there. It's kind of like all all the possibilities are there, um, and uh, it's a very. It does create that exact sense of anxiety that you had mentioned before, um, with with an incredibly simple system. And uh, and of course with victory points uh, they have a nice components that they put together so it's it's a it's a beautifully put together game with when you look at the actual substance of it very straightforward um, th- that's the thing that really impresses me when I look at games I mean I'm not a game designer I can't design games to save my life but um, when I see things come together like that where the the production the sort of art design the the very what you've called Previously in uh, articles on quarter three, the, the interface, right? I mean, everything you have a, um, you have the individual uh, brigades are these long kind of counters that uh, sort of mimic a line of troops, and then as you they start out all one long line, and then they kind of move, and then it, the line breaks up, and some of them become disordered, and then they move back, and it kind of it's kind of this building chaos that happens. Um, I mean, they put it together beautifully, and it, it's it's a real. It's not just a game; it's sort of a presentation. Uh, I feel like um, that's I, I very have a question. That. So, uh, and I wouldn't want to necessarily talk on this level with Herman around. Uh, actually, I wouldn't have minded, but uh, I'll ask you because you've played it, and Herman uh, would have a vested interest in maybe answering this a certain way. Um, the specificity of In Magnificent Style, which sounds like a strength of it. How much does that hurt its replay value? Like once you've played this thing uh, five or six times, mm-hmm. will it have showed you everything it's going to show you? Is there any point playing it five or six more times or, or ten more times? Like uh, because it's so specific, uh, does that impact its replayability? Um, you know, I haven't gotten to the point where I feel like I'm done with it, so I I don't know how to answer that question in that sense. I mean, I, I can imagine that there's there's not going to be a new um, 
I mean, I, 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 should, I take that back. I mean, <clears throat> because of the, the idea of the outlier results, I mean, you could have a situation where, uh, first of all, it's very hard to win the game. Um, but I would say that I would play it until I got, you know, uh, you know, uh, one of the overwhelming victories where multiple brigades crossed the Union lines and, and uh, uh, you know, made it made it across the the shooting gallery. Um, that hasn't happened to me yet, and every time I play it, I feel like uh, I want to keep playing it until I get to that point. Now, once I beat the game. <laughs> Then who knows? But I love I mean, that you use that language because that's how people talk about video games, like mm-hmm. like whether they're playing Diablo or, uh, or or any game that's not designed. Diablo's a bad example. That's not designed to be completely open ended. They're mm-hmm. like, yeah, I beat it. You know, it's over. The right. game is done for me. It's yeah. I can I can throw it away now for all intents and purposes. Right. I mean, that, that's and and that the, the amount of time that you play the game. Exactly. I was about to. You know, I was gonna, that's a good point. I was going to bring that up. Is that you know you play a game and you beat it and then you're like, okay, well that was fun and that's the end and but you know you 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 paid your money and you got your play time and then it's done and there's nothing wrong with uh you know there's certainly no uh um you know in magnificent style skirmish mode um (laughs) but uh i I don't have a problem with that i mean really i mean it's um i just i kind of like that that i the thing that i guess i like most about games like that is i just like picking up counters and moving them I think that the tactile experience of playing a game is always interesting, and it will any time I feel like getting back into sort of that historical milieu, as we would say uh, in France, um, the uh, Imagine style is going to be something that I would be glad to pick up, probably even after I beat it. Of course, I haven't beat it yet, so. It, it does remind me, so I love that you call out the difference between design and development, and it reminds me of something that I've played recently, and I apologize for, again, pulling us away from history into the realm mm. of, of goofy horror, um, okay. but a fellow whose work we both know and, and admire named Dan Verson. Verson? Yes. Verson? How do you say Verson. his name? I used to say Dan Verson. Verson. Okay, that sounds right. Uh, Dan Verson Games. So Dan mm-hmm. has done a lot of historical and sort of military hardware porn yes, stuff, uh, yep. which is really hot. Um, this is a, a game developed not by Dan, but he published it. Dan Verson Games has published a game, and I... I apologize for not knowing the designer's name off the top of my head, uh, but he published a game recently called Cards of Cthulhu. And yeah. Cards of Cthulhu, mm-hmm. I feel, is a good example of design and a terrible example of development. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it's, you know, you talk about liking to move chits, and to that I would add, I like rolling dice, I like shuffling cards, I like physically flipping a card off of a deck. Mm-hmm. And Cards of Cthulhu is basically an engine to make you do a lot of that. You're rolling a lot of dice, you're flipping mm-hmm. a lot of cards, mm-hmm. and you're moving chits around. Um, and thematically, I, it comes with these boards. Uh, there are four boards, and you're, each one's supposed to represent like a cult that's trying to summon <laughs> an elder god or whatever. And, yep. and so, and they're all, they're basically suits of cards. You know, there's the red, the green, the yellow, and the blue. And, um, there's a board for each one, and the board's layouts are so, the boards are just an excuse for them to print artwork, I think. And one of the mm. first things I did in the game is just got rid of those boards. Mm. And once that happens, I've lost a big visual splash. Right. Uh, there's artwork on the cards themselves, but I pretty quickly ignore that and just look at the values. Um, so, so what happens then is this idea of there being different cults, that's presented poorly, that goes out the window. Mm-hmm. Um, it eventually becomes, and, and it's also really easy. 
Like I at first when I was playing and before I realized some of the rules, I kept losing, and then I read the manual again and was like, oh, okay, so you can do this, and I can't lose now. Mm. Uh, but I, it's just an exercise. It, it's like a time waster, like a crossword puzzle. It's yeah. like doing a crossword puzzle where you know you're going to beat it. It's right. just a matter of time. Hmm. It's the same thing with Cards of Cthulhu. I know I'm going to win, and I'm just doing it almost the way somebody might smoke a cigarette. To just have something to do with my hands. You know, I'm rolling the dice. I'm flipping the cards. I'm moving yeah. these cool little – it comes with these little metal discs that represent experience, shuffling mm-hmm. those around on the table. Um, and I've completely lost sight of any theming. You know, all of that is gone. There's little bits of artwork, as I mentioned, in the yeah. cards, and those are cool. Um, but there, this is the development. The design is cool as just a gameplay system. But the development should have given it a better interface. Mm-hmm. It should have done more for the theming. Mm-hmm. It should have made it more difficult. Um, okay. And and I just feel it's it's uh, it's a solid idea that that kind of fell apart on the way to my table. Interesting. Um, yeah, that's a, that's the. You're right. That is the that is the fault of the developer. Uh, and for the you know listeners who are not you know think of developers as the programmers of a, you know there's a developer and a publisher in video games, uh, in board games there's a designer and a developer and I've had a, a really interesting experience. So since you've taken it to uh, the land of uh, eldritch horror, I will take it back to historical strategy, and uh, <laughs> say that uh, you know I've, I've been working on um, El Alamein, which is now called Desert Fox by uh, Shenandoah, or I don't know, I shouldn't say I've been working on it, I've been helping playtest it, but I've been involved in the in the sort of playtest and development process for, it's getting close to a year now, I think it was in June when I first downloaded the, the initial print-and-play um, kit, and it's amazing the way that Shenandoah thinks about, you know, how are we going to integrate systems in the game, like there's the, you know, the idea of, um, of the... Uh, there, there's a there's an air system where um, the the allied uh, uh, air force can interdict and, and kind of freeze uh, Axis units, but the Axis also have uh, flak units that um, b- work both against ground units and air units. But the systems changed as the game was being developed, and one of the things that happened was at one point the um, the flak units stopped. Um, you, the, the the allies could just choose a unit to interdict, and they just did it, and it didn't it didn't have any um, any interaction with the with the flak units, and that really they they quickly realized that you want to tie as many systems together on the on the board as possible. So the fact that the flak unit no longer had a physical sort of uh, die roll uh, implementation for this offboard system was bad, and so. They said, nope, we got to put that back in. That's going to be that way. Um, the way that the the, um, the they took the supply system and said, well, the closer you are to the edge of the board, the more likely you are to have a supply. Everything, so they, they wanted to put everything on, just like you said, you know, the, the um, Cards of Cthulhu took uh, a map and just made, a re- just made it a, an excuse to have artwork. And Shenandoah realized that your map is your game, so... All these off-board systems where you're rolling dice should have some tie-in, and there should be some real consequences that are determined by board position. Mm-hmm. So you can never just say, "Oh, this this is some kind of extra thing that's happening," and and we just are rolling dice. It all comes back to the board. So you're always focused on the board, and I think that that's that's a development. That's 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 somebody talking to the designer and saying, "Hey, look, 
if you focus your systems on the board, the, the iPad is your board, um, it's going to tie together a lot better. I I hate to do actually I don't hate to do this to you Bruce but let me pull it back into the realm of the fantastic. Oh. <laughs> so uh, Fantasy Flight, who who did they did a game originally called Arkham Horror, uh, big crazy. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's the epitome of Ameritrash. There's so many cards and tokens and little stand up figures moving mm-hmm. around, and the cards are just full of splashes of, of text that you're supposed to read, and it's just crammed with junk. And the board itself. No person, just boxes stuck together, mm-hmm. and every now and then, oh, there's a monster in that box, I'll go to this box, whatever. Mm-hmm. A terrible presentation of a place, of a mm-hmm. map, of a board, of a meaningful board. Right. One of the things that I love that they've done with Eldritch Horror, which is kind of their reboot of this game, mm-hmm. um, is that what you're talking about with El Alamein and them wanting to bring the map alive, Eldritch Horror does an amazing job using all the different systems to have them relate to specific points of the map. And one mm-hmm. of the things they do is Eldritch Horror is global. It's not mm-hmm. just in a town, which is going to be city blocks or streets. It's a, it's a picture of the globe, and mm-hmm. there are specific cities that are called out. So, for instance, if you draw a creature called a Chthonian, which is mm-hmm. this crazy underground uh, monster that causes earthquakes, wherever you draw it, the little tile says, oh, this always goes to the space called Heart of Africa. You know, there's, a, there's a serpent people. When you draw him, it goes to the Amazon. And furthermore, every now and then it forces the investigators, it's luring them. It forces them to move one space closer to the Amazon. Hmm. Um, and there are, uh, uh, the, the globe is connected by shipping lines and rail lines. And it matters which ones you use and how. For instance, hmm. one of the characters is a sailor. He's basically based on, um, uh, Ned Land from 20,000 Leagues oh my Under God. the Sea. And, and Michael whenever. Douglas. Uh, oh God, I hate that you think of that. <laughs> uh, not uh, Kirk Douglas. Same thing. Yeah, right. Uh, and whenever this character is on a C tile, like he gets an extra die. So it 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 basically is an an exercise in post release development, where they mm-hmm. took this system in Arkham Horror and realize, oh, the map's kind of inconsequential. Right. And they, for the re-release, they developed it further to make the map more meaningful, to right. give the spaces, and we talked a little bit about this with Herman, to give some spaces significance that ties into the theme right. above and beyond other spaces. Right. Uh, and, I, you know, I love, I normally you hear about a delay in a game, and you're like, oh, well, that sucks. But knowing what I know, I love that they're, that Shenandoah is taking their time with El Alamein, or, or Desert Fox as it is yeah. now. Desert Fox, yeah, it's called, yeah. How do, you, how do you feel about the change of name? I hate it. <laughs> but I, that was my first reaction when you said that. But I realized there's probably someone in marketing who knows that El Alamein oh, yeah. is a terrible name terrible. to put on a game because yeah. no one's going to know what it means. No, yeah, no one has any idea. They're Whereas think Desert, like, yeah. yeah, Desert Fox, yeah. they might even think it's like some, some kind of a... Uh, I think it's like a Spanish restaurant game or something <laughs> Yeah, something about maybe conquistadors. Right. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So no, I I agree. No, it's, there's no there's no um, there's no reason to keep that name. Uh, it was a you know for the Kickstarter, it, it made sense, right? For the Kickstarter, right. they were they were uh, um, they were trying to appeal to historical war gamers, and anybody who uh, was going to back that Kickstarter would know exactly what El Alamein meant. Uh, and after that, they said, you know what? Um, we need to make make it clear that um, this is a game that people can play. And they've they've done a, I mean they've done, taken a lot of time. This is a game that uh, was not ready to be released um, back 
you know, last summer, fall, and they've just gone over the systems and sort of tweaked things. And some of the tweaks, some of the, it's amazing. It's like some of these minor tweaks just completely change the game. Um, I wrote a uh, an article about um, about the development and uh, sort of playtesting on my uh, website. If you go to www.wargamespace.com, that's a little plug there. Uh, you can read about uh, the Western Desert uh, and um, how things have changed. And little tiny tweaks in the in the systems make a huge uh, difference in gameplay. So it's it's probably it's gonna as far as I know it's coming out this month. Uh, and I think you get a much better product. Uh, whoa, 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 wait. Desert Fox is coming out this month? I'm pretty sure. Holy cats, that's awesome news. Yeah, yeah. It'll be out, uh, I'm pretty sure it's going to be in May. I mean, it might be in June, but I, uh, my my last uh, information was that they're gonna. it's going to be sometime sometime in May. Good. Well, it's impending. That's uh, Yes, good. it's definitely impending. Glad to hear that. All right. Well, all right, so uh, thanks to everyone for listening to our conversation with Herman, and of course, again, thanks again to Herman for hanging out and talking with us uh, on a variety of subjects. Thank you, Herman. Uh, If you're listening, follow us on, let me see if I can get this right, you can follow us on Twitter, I am at at QT3, Bruce is at at Space Rumsfeld. That's correct. Not Rumsfield. No, no. Rumsfeld. Does someone else have Space Rumsfield, I wonder? No, that's like Cloverfield. (laughs) <laughs> uh, and uh, also you can find me at quarter to three dot com you can find Bruce at wargamespace.com um, yep, all one word don't put any underscores yes, or dashes no, nothing like that yeah, it's also that it's stuff. it's not wargaming space no it's just wargamespace one word dot com, dot com. Yep. Uh, and uh, thanks for listening and we will see everyone here next week good night